How much does a manager matter? We'll talk about that and more with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 28th. It's show number 51 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated about playoff teams and their chances, managers as tacticians, fantasy players for next year, and much more. And we'll have our regular weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola, about stats that are overused, about the Red Sox moving Hanley Ramirez to first base and cutting ties with play-by-play man Don Orsillo. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at a first impression of Philadelphia starting pitcher Aaron Nola, about Tanner Rourke's return to the Washington rotation, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at lots of closer changes, injuries, and much more. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Pirates right-hander Tyler Glasnow. In our Playing Time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at Malik Smith and his potential stolen base impact down the stretch. In Frequent Flyers, Alex Becky looks at Logan Verrett, Brandon Geyer, and Rowanus Elias. In our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at Baltimore right-hander Ubaldo Jimenez in Texas to face Southpaw Martin Perez, Cubs lefty John Lester in Los Angeles to face the Dodgers righty Matt Latos, and much more. And in Masternotes, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager Ray Murphy talks about 10 reasons not to miss first pitch Arizona. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? About 35 games left to go. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League, and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. One of our linchpin columns at BaseballHQ.com is Facts and Flukes, which is a performance validation column where our analysts look at players and their performance and try to assess whether it's a fact, which means it's going to continue, or a fluke, which means we can expect some regression. And... uh, Greg Pyron did the August 27th Facts and Flukes uh, just earlier this week, and one of the players he covered was D.J. LeMahieu, the second baseman in Colorado. Yeah, you know, D.J. LeMahieu has been an interesting case kind of all year because he, he started, uh, was, was really hot early in the year, and, and finally some guys decided maybe I ought to pick him up because he's playing second brace in Colorado, I mean, you know, after all. And, but, but I think there was always in the background that, this, this fear that eventually he's going to collapse and, and head into the tank. Uh, and then, lo and behold, he uh, he winds up making the All Star team and slowed down a little bit since the All Star break, but not but not too much. And Greg Pyron did, I think, a really nice uh, analysis of Lemayhew in terms of his his strengths and and how he's been going. Uh, not a flashy ball player, a guy whose speed is certainly his best his best asset. Uh, but if he uses that correctly, uh, somebody who can hit around 290 and steal some bases for you. So. Uh, at this point, Greg Pyron says that he's hitting a good number of ground balls. 
uh, doing the kind of things he needs to to get on base. Uh, his stolen base uh, percentage is up from uh, 50% a year ago to 86% this year, which means he's getting a lot more opportunities than he was a year ago to uh, to run. I mean, his, his stolen base percentage dropped a bit in July for some reason, but up to 24% in August. Um, and so here's a guy that really could become a kind of... Uh, of linchpin second baseman hitting close to 290, stealing 30 bases or so. Uh, in, uh, so certainly a, a very positive outlook, I think, at this point for D.J. LeMahieu, especially given the, the boost he gets from Colorado. Mentioning that boost in Colorado, though, Nick, D.J. LeMahieu, we should make clear, is not really a power prospect. He's going to be lucky to finish the year. He won't make 10 home runs. I don't think he's at five now, if I'm not mistaken. And and he's never really been a, a big home run hitter, even in the uh, rarefied atmosphere. I think five was his peak last year as well. Yeah, he's not, going to, he's not going to develop power in Colorado, but we've got to remember that also seems to boost batting average a bit, too. Uh, and that's where I think LeMahieu gains his... Uh, uh, gains his positives from, from the from the ballpark in Colorado is that the tendency to get that batting average up a bit. Hitting three ten right now, you know, and certainly a guy who can hit around three hundred and steal thirty bases is uh, is valuable in today's uh, fantasy uh, fantasy landscape. Oh, you said a mouthful. I'm working on some research right now about uh, the stolen base percentages and how many times guys are running, and that that is declining pretty rapidly the last few years, and this year has really seen a big fall-off. So anybody who can generate stolen bases, if you keep stolen bases as a category, has some value. Now, is there any concern... The line drive percentage this year for DJ LeMahieu at 26% for 2015 uh, seems a little high. Is, there a, is that a worry? It's a little, it seems a little high, although he had a 27% line drive percentage in 2013. So um, while, while it's hard to tell if this is completely real, um, certainly he's going to have to hold on to that live drive percentage, and his, his history suggests he might be able to do that. Um, but that, that does need to happen, obviously, in order for him to keep that batting average up. Uh, something that has been a little reassuring in that regard is uh, hard contact index, where 100 is league average. Uh, this is the first year that he's managed to get right at 100, and his hard contact index has risen every year he's been in the major leagues, which is an indication that he's figuring things out as he goes, he's adapting, and those are good signs for any hitter. Yeah, it's certainly very positive. I mean, you're right. It's been a it's been a slow increase, but it's there. Eighty nine percent hard con- eighty nine hard contact index in 2012, and just been inching up to to this year's ninety nine. And certainly, that bodes well, I think, for for uh, Lemayu's future. Might be a case of a guy playing to his strengths, uh, knowing what his strengths are, and trying to maximize them, and not trying to be what he isn't. There's a lot of value in that, and of course, a middle infielder has value as well. Uh, Greg Pyron, in that same facts and flukes column, added uh, what we call first impression—that is, a facts and flukes analysis of a player who's new to baseball or new to the big leagues, at least—and uh, he looked at uh, starting pitcher Aaron Nola of the Phillies. Aaron Nola is a guy that uh, that a lot of people were, were pretty high on as he came up, and he did very well moving up through the through the minor leagues, and he's done very well since he's gotten to the majors at this point, a 3.59 ERA. Um, the, the, the Aaron Nola's strengths are really his control. He's had excellent control all the way through his career. That's actually slipped a little bit since he got to the majors. But uh, it, it's been command and control that have gotten him where he's, where he's going. He's a guy that I got to see pitch here at LSU, and the same sort of thing is uh, is likely to happen at uh, he, it would be nice if he could get his, get his ground ball percentage up a little bit. It's up to 47% this year in his 43 major league innings. Uh, he doesn't have an overpowering fastball, uh, doesn't have a really dominant swing and miss offering. So those are the things that are they're going to kind of cap his ceiling. 
But uh, Aaron Nola may may end up being what he is right now, which is a very solid number uh, number two, number three starter with uh, an ERA certainly between three point five and four, uh, and producing fairly solid outings all the way along the way. So a, a guy who's going to pitch a, a decent ERA, a good whip, uh, a modest dom, um, twenty two years old, maybe he can come up with a big strikeout pitch. Uh, and that would be kind of the last piece of the puzzle into really making him into a, into an outstanding pitcher. That said, uh, for the moment, his strikeout rate is 7.2 strikeouts per nine dominance. Uh, that's kind of league average, maybe a touch below. So Aaron Nola is not going to really help you pile up strikeouts if that's a category. Right, I think that's true. And I think that's the one thing you need to realize about him. He's going to be a good ERA whip guy, and uh, who knows how many wins he'll actually get pitching for the Phillies. But uh, the strikeouts are not something you want to count on. But when you look at his PQS log, he's had one, two, three, seven starts, and one, two, three, four, five of them have been PQS four or five. He's had no PQS disasters. And you mentioned uh, when you started talking about Aaron Nola, Nick, he's got consistency. And sometimes when you're looking at a, especially a season-long format, and you want a you want a pitcher who's not going to kill you at any stage of the game and may actually uh, contribute in his own small way every time he goes out there. Yeah, that's right, and that's what uh, you know. That's what you're going to get from Aaron Nola, as contrasted with some. You know, there, there's some really big strikeout guys that you think about who, who can have tremendous games, but then suddenly go in the tank for a game because they've lost their command for that particular game, or or they're getting the ball over the middle of the plate and guys are hitting it out. So Aaron Nola's not going to do that. He's going to be pretty consistent all the way along the way, and, and that certainly has value. A slight touch of gopheritis with Aaron Nola. He's given up uh, six home runs in his uh, seven starts. That's something that maybe would be better if he could increase his ground ball percentage a little? Yeah, very definitely. I mean, it would certainly help to get that down and get the ground ball percentage up, the fly ball percentage down, and probably keep the ball in the park just a tad, just a tad bit more. And finally, one last caveat. If you're looking at Aaron Nola down the stretch, it appears that the Phillies have him on some kind of fairly tight uh, pitch count. His uh, maximum so far this year, which was his last start at uh, Florida in Miami, a uh, hundred pitches, and everything before that has been below that. And he's only getting through five or six innings with those ninety to hundred pitches. So that that and the poor team that he's pitching for with the Phillies really mitigates against him getting a lot of wins. Although he's four for seven. Right. Very definitely. Speaking of pitchers, uh, Tanner Rourke had a really good year last year for the Washington Nationals. Then he found himself on the outside looking in when they signed Max Scherzer. And uh, now he's going to go back into the rotation because of an innings limit they've placed on Joe Ross, who himself was having a really good season. Yeah, Joe Ross having a tremendous season. If you're a Joe Ross owner, you've got to be kind of moaning, going, oh, no, because he's been pitching very, very well. I think I think this week uh, allowed nowhere in runs in seven innings or something like that. So. Uh, pitching extremely well, but but wisely, they are putting uh, putting uh, Joe Ross on a pitch count for a, for a young pitcher. He's pitched more innings so already this year than he's ever thrown before in his career. So they're watching his future, which of course they need to do. So we're back to Tanner Rourke, who had Tanner Rourke had a very very good year a year ago. Struggled a bit uh, at the start of this year. I mean, two point eight five ERA last season, and you know if you if you look at the follow the metrics here at Baseball HQ, while that was very nice. We were saying his XERA was 3.8, uh, and he was really something uh, much, much closer to that. And so this year's, uh, this year's 4.54 ERA, we see the regression and the flip to the other side, but his XERA 4.02, certainly in the same ballpark. So overall, I think Tanner Rourke is the same pitcher he was a year ago. He's just not having the, uh, the run of good luck he had a year ago, and I think that's what we can expect down the stretch is somebody who's going to produce 
right around a, a 3.7, 3.8, maybe 4.0 ERA, uh, and will not approach the levels that we saw him at uh, last season. Our projection for Tanner Rourke is for a couple of starts, uh, three or four maybe in September, with uh, one win, as you said, about a 4 ERA, 130 whip. This is not... And let's be be very clear about this. This is not an outstanding type of pitcher. He's a roster filler for a lot of leagues, especially shallower leagues. Might not even be rosterable in certain formats. Yeah, very definitely. And so don't don't expect you know don't get too excited about Tanner Rourke going back into the rotation. And certainly don't expect him to reproduce what he did a season ago. It, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. And finally, our bullpens columnist, Doug Dennis, does a terrific job covering bullpens in the uh, Relief Buyer's Guide at BaseballHQ.com. And this week he had a really interesting column, Nick. I really enjoyed reading The Elite Class. And this is a, a column in which Doug ignores pitcher roles. He's not talking about closers here. He's talking about all relievers. And he's picking out those who have just the most outstanding skills amongst all of them. And one of the names that came out uh, among many that were really interesting was uh, just Justin Grimm of the Cubs. Yeah, Justin Grimm has had an outstanding season. Uh, you know, we, we said, if you go back to the forecaster and look at their talk about Justin Grimm, he was marked with a sleeper alert and said uh, upside was a, a, a three, sub-3 three ERA and 15 saves, and we've certainly seen the sub-3 ERA. It's at 1.21 uh, as we speak in a 0.94 whip uh, and just hasn't managed to break through as, as the, the closer for the Cubs. But uh, a 164 BPV certainly one of the most skilled relief pitchers in the National League. Uh, Dom rate of 12.8, uh, so striking out guys at a, at a very high rate, uh, very getting good velocity, good swinging strike rate. Um, Justin Graham is somebody certainly to keep an eye on uh, as you, if you're in a keeper league as you head into next season. Uh, if he's available, he's a guy to kind of sneak on your roster perhaps at the end of the year. Uh, and certainly keep an eye on him heading into next year. Certainly the Cubs should be looking at somebody to, to, to be their closer. They've played musical chairs with that role uh, this year. Hector Rondon seems to have solidified it for now, but uh, Grimm is just pitching better than anybody else in that bullpen, and you wonder, Joe Madden's a pretty pretty sharp guy, although he has been a bit conservative on his relief core when he was with Tampa. He's been a little indecisive in terms of this season with that relief core as well, so you really don't know what he's going to do, but but uh, Justin Graham certainly has the skills to really step into that role if he's given the opportunity. Keep an eye on him for next year is a good uh, good advice. If you are in a keeper league and you can spare him on your reserve list or have a slot open in your pitching core, maybe Justin Graham could be a nice cheap get at the end of this year to hang on to for next year. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out with news from the National League. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time for the last show of the season. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols on the telephone because of technical problems caused by Windows 10. Harold is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis and Speculator Columnist Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Thanks, PD. The big questions in the American League this week and maybe for the rest of the season are going to turn around bullpens, it looks like. Uh, we have some questions in Seattle, Boston, and Detroit I'd really like to talk to you about, maybe Oakland if we have time. Uh, first of all, are you as surprised as I am at all of a sudden how many bullpens seem to be in flux or in disarray? Yeah, I am. It's it's the quantity of these situations that, that's really fascinating. Um, what surprises me right now in the American League is just how many teams don't seem to have quality pens or at least arms who can step in and at least resolve or stabilize these, these issues for a month or so. 
Some of the situations we're looking at are really difficult for fantasy owners because they're so volatile. You have, you have managers trying to close out ninth innings and win games who will do whatever works no matter how ugly the stat lines look. Um, you have situations in which seemingly the best option skills-wise isn't locking things down consistently enough to be trusted. That puts me in mind of an old uh, adage we used to use at BaseballHQ.com that there was skill, talent, and guile. And guile was that indefinable something that makes a closer a closer. And I know a lot of people didn't buy into it, but we have seen an awful lot of situations where pitchers who seem to have closer-worthy skills just can't get the job done. Is it time we started rethinking the whole guile aspect of being a successful closer? Yeah, I don't know. It's so hard to say because it's so hard to define that that term guile. Some people call it luck. And, and let's face it, uh, for some of the situations we're about to talk about, how many do you think um, the guy who, who has the, close, the closer job at this particular moment or at least ha ha is in charge of it. I mean, how long is this? How long is this guy going to last? I mean, what's what's the two or three or four saves he might get worth to you? Because some of these guys, I just don't see closing over the long haul. Well, a good example of that, I think, is in Seattle, where clearly the best skills seem to belong to Carson Smith. They've sent Fernando Rodney to Chicago, so he's no longer in the picture. And yet, Tom Wilhelmson, who's not as skilled as Carson Smith has the closer role. And that's just one example of many. But let's start with the Seattle situation. Rod Trusdell covered it in playing time today, and you've analyzed Smith a lot of times in playing time tomorrow. What's going on in Seattle with the skills versus role situation? Well, clearly when we look at the numbers, Smith has the best skills of any Seattle relief pitchers. Uh, if you look at the stats, he's striking out more than uh, uh, 12 batters a game. Uh, his ground ball rate is, is terrific. But he's blown three saves in August. He's, he's 13 for 17, 13 saves and 17 opportunities overall. And, but despite the skills, he's working with a 5.09 ERA in the second half. Now, if you look really deep into, into his numbers, uh, it's, it's, it's a combination of bouts of poor control. He has a 5.1 uh, uh, walks per nine inning ratio in the second half as opposed to 1.7 in the first half. And five of his six wild pitches have come since, since June. So... That combined with some bad luck, he's got a 37, 38% hit rate, I think, are the culprits. Uh, uh, Smith's strikeouts per nine and ground ball have actually soared in the second half. Uh, he's striking out close to 13, and he's got a 71% ground ball rate since, uh, since June. He has yet to give up a home run since that month, but the wildness right now is just killing him. And I think that's a really important thing. We, it's hard to say, maybe, that, uh, that his skill set looked, looked at in whole is really, really good when he's walking that many guys. It's a very big problem for a closer. And we also have to keep in mind, and I've been thumping the tub about this for years, when we talk about a control ratio in at BaseballHQ.com, it's walks per nine. But I really think that wild pitches should be incorporated into that statistic because it's it's a kind of control or lack of control that's even worse than a walk because they only score it as a wild pitch if there's a guy already on base and he moves up. And a batter moving up can never be good for a pitcher, especially for a closer. No, I agree. And I've, and I've watched Smith in some of his key situations. And some of these wild pitches have, have come during those times. But specific to him, if we're talking about small samples, he's never had control problems in the minors. He didn't have them in the first half of the season. These are, these are just the last two months. So you have to wonder how much fatigue in, in what is probably his longest baseball season ever is playing a factor here. 
Yeah, I hear that too, but, uh, you know, he doesn't pitch that often. It's not like he's throwing, uh, you know, heading up to his 240th inning of the year by any stretch of the imagination. And heaven knows Seattle hasn't had that many save opportunities to dish out. It. I know they warm up in the bullpen and that takes uh, takes its toll. You know, when I see a guy who's sut- had a really good career walk rate and all of a sudden starts firing the ball all over the yard, I think there's an injury or the great possibility of an elbow problem or, or some kind of arm problem because it seems to me that every time that happens, the first indication of it is that control starts to slip. That's actually a very good comment. Um, the one thing, I'll take the other side of it just uh, just for the sake of argument. The thing about Smith is he hasn't been walking people every game. It seems to happen intermittently. Then again, I, I still think your point holds. Doug Dennis in his most recent bullpen buyer's guide was very enthusiastic about Carson Smith in the longer term. So if he's healthy, and that's a big if, I think, it could really be a keeper league buying opportunity, uh, I I think. And meanwhile, what about Tom Wilhelmson? What kind of opportunity does he present in the near and long term? Well, if you remember, he used to close games for Seattle real briefly. I think he spent half a season as as the Seattle closer two or three years ago, uh, primarily because he throws in the mid-upper 90s, and his and his uh, his dom rate, his uh, uh, strikeouts per nine, is pretty good. It's almost uh, nine nine strikeouts per game per nine innings. But he has poor control. His ground ball rate is about 40%. It's okay. And his control isn't any better than, uh, than Smith's, but he hasn't allowed the runs to score. He saved the last two Seattle wins Friday, and that's what gives him uh, control over the job. Now, if you throw in a manager like Lloyd McClendon, who's on the hot seat and he, who desperately needs to start winning games, and particularly stop losing games in which he's ahead going into the ninth inning, he's going to go with whoever gets the job done, and that's why Wilhelmson is where he is right now. Forget what the overall numbers say. Boy, I'll tell you what, if, if McClendon is trying to hold on to his job by pitching the, the, the luckiest guy in the bullpen, I don't think that's going to really augur well for his long-term future. I was looking at Wilhelms and stats. It, it, you know, he's got that nine strikeouts per nine, which is pretty good, not as good as Carson Smith, but his walk ratios, uh, control ratios and walks per nine have been pretty bad for the last three years. And he's got a command ratio, strikeouts to walks, under two. And usually when we're looking at closers, we're looking at five plus. None of this looks good for Tom Wilhelmson or for his owners. Yeah, and, and relative to Carson Smith, if, if you remember what this particular organization did after uh, Danny Farquhar saved, I think, 17, 18 games, but struggled a little bit um, in the process, they went out and they got a, a, a brand new closer. They went out and... Uh, and got Fernando Rodney uh, in the offseason. So Carson Smith doesn't necessarily have a, a, a handle on the closer role going into uh, 2016. It's very possible they may hold this, uh, this lapse in his, uh, his inexperience against him. And given the fact that their front office seems to be uh, the kind of uh, operation where they react first and think later, maybe they'll go out and spend too much money on a closer and, uh, and not address their on-base percentage problem, which is really what's killing that team. Uh, over in Detroit, another similar situation. Doug Dennis wrote about the situation at uh, BaseballHQ.com in the Bullpen Buyer's Guide column. He says Bruce Rondon is the obviously highest skilled option, but... Again, this doesn't seem like a cut-and-dried proposition. No, it's not, uh, and I agree with Doug. I think uh, Rondon is clearly the, the most highly skilled pitcher. He throws 98. His strikeout rate per nine is near 13. He's still struggling with his command. He's coming off of, of Tommy John surgery. The difference between him and Carson Smith is Rondon currently has a tentative grasp on the closer job. Um, 
uh, Ausmus has said so much. And he, they're trying to develop them. They're trying to see what they have. But similar to Seattle, they have a terrible pen. So if, uh, if Rondon doesn't get the job done, uh, there's really not much behind him uh, over these next five weeks for fantasy owners to choose from. Well, what about Alex Wilson? He had a couple of saves earlier on. Yeah, Wilson currently has a 1.75 ERA, mostly by virtue of 50% ground ball rate and exquisite control. He's walking less than two batters per nine innings, but he also has a 3.81 expected ERA, and he's averaging just over five strikeouts per nine, which is hardly the profile you want in the ninth inning. You know, again, his insertion here is more the upshot of a really bad pen more than uh, than anything else. So, you know, the, the advice here would be the same. If you really, really want to take a flyer on saves, uh, um, try to handcuff both of them, and longer term, Rondone is the pick, but uh, there's no sure things here in Detroit. Do you think, though, that uh, those formulas like expected ERA and XFIP and all those kind of things, which depend to a large degree on strikeout rate, kind of undersell guys who just don't, don't happen to strike out lots of guys and kind of reinforce this idea where we say, well, a closer should have a, a high strikeout rate, and this guy doesn't have a high strikeout rate, therefore he has a high expected ERA, therefore he shouldn't be a closer. Remember Dan Quisenberry, his strikeout rate was like 3.5 guys per nine innings, and what he did was no walks, lots of ground balls. Who's to say it can't work with uh, Alex Wilson? Yeah, to a degree I think you're right, but when I see a 1.57 a 1.75 ERA and a 3.81 XERA, when, when the difference becomes two to three runs, I start to worry a little bit. And that's my point, Jock. I don't know why we worry so much about it because expected ERA is a manufactured thing. Most pitchers get their ERAs by having some combination of strikeouts and few walks and, and so forth. But maybe this guy's just got the knack of inducing weak contact and uh, getting lots of easy ground balls, very few fly balls, very few home runs, and he never walks anybody, maybe that's just a different path to success. Maybe this is a buying opportunity, assuming that somebody somewhere figures out in the Detroit organization, hey, this guy's not striking anybody out, but he's also not giving up any runs. That works. Now, that's a really good point, and maybe the, the, the prototype of that is Brad Ziegler. You're going to need a good defense behind you. You're going to need a high ground ball rate. I'm not sure Wilson is that guy. His ground ball rate is, is 50%. Uh, I could be wrong, but uh, it, it's an interesting conversation. Of course, if you have to rely on somebody in big league baseball to think about things in a new way, you're probably not in the right area anyway. Boston, another team with a bad bullpen, especially uh, since Koji Uehara went on the DL for the rest of the season, and uh, they don't have a closer. They're kind of bouncing around with guys like uh, Yunichi Tozawa. They looked at Gene Mashi. I don't know, Jock, what the heck's going on here? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, um, the, 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 the first choice was Mashi, and then they, they put in Tozawa. A lot of us are wondering why Boston hasn't put Tozawa in a closer role before this. Uh, he's had good numbers as a setup guy. Um, and then, all of a sudden in August, he gets a closer role. He saved three games, but he's also blown four other opportunities, and he's posted a nine ERA with just three strikeouts and nine innings pitch. He may be just tired, but he's been pretty erratic and something he wasn't as a setup man. So you have to ask yourself, is there some sort of cause and effect that we're missing here? Is there guile? Is there something about that role that uh, that turns off the juice in some of these guys? Uh, right now, Boston's not getting anything done in the ninth, and it could stay that way for the remainder of the season. And again, we come back to that same idea. Is there such a thing as guile? Tozawa seems to have all the skills and all the, uh, all the pitches he needs to, to dominate as a closer, and yet anytime they've given him the chance, he hasn't done it, and they seem very reluctant to give him the chance, and they know him better than we do. 
Boy, it's a, it's a very interesting situation. Now, what about this Jean Machi? Yeah, he used to be a decent pitcher in San Francisco, but his performance is way off this year. His ratios, uh, uh, strikeouts and walks per nine, they're all going in the, in the wrong direction. They're all underwater now. His ERA has been at five-plus all season, 6.75 in August. His, his expected ERA not far behind. I wouldn't be taking the chance on him this year, particularly pitching in, uh, in Fenway Park. Yeah, sometimes, you know, the best way to play a closer situation is to just not play certain teams because there is there is literally not a good option. And it, it, we always talk about, when we're talking about starting pitchers, don't chase wins. And maybe we ought to add a corollary to that that says, when you're looking at relievers, don't chase saves necessarily either. The role matters, but sometimes nobody should have the role. Yeah, it's something I try to follow as well. And, and it just seems that the times I don't chase the role all of a sudden, the, the guy survives for for three, four months in the role and picks up uh, 25 saves before he gets uh, he gets replaced. It's uh, it's it's a real tough situation, and uh, everybody has their own way of addressing it, and it, it usually depends on the needs, and it's always a gamble. Along with all these, uh, let me ask you one more thing about a closer. In Oakland, they're making noise about bringing Sean Doolittle back into the closer role because they haven't had a lot of success. Uh, Sean Doolittle, of course, was a very successful closer in Oakland before uh, encountering injury problems twice this year, actually. He came back and went back to the DL. Sean Doolittle worth a play? Um, Only... Only, again, if you're if you're chasing saves. I watched a little pitch the other night. He was uh, his fastball was coming in about ninety. He's three four miles off of where he was. Um, his command wasn't great. From what I understand uh, and the comments I've heard, Oakland wants him to to get this job back just because again they've got a black hole in the ninth inning as well. I don't have a lot of confidence in him. I mean, he's come back. He's had a forearm strain you know all year long. He had it uh, what last year? I think he went down. Um, and uh, for a pitcher to come back from that, particularly when his velocity is down, I'm just, I'm just not seeing it right now. Again, I think he's a gamble. Uh, if you're going to pick anybody right now, um, it's probably going to be Doolittle. Uh, on the other hand, I'd also take a hard look at Drew Pomerantz, who's been pretty decent in relief for the A's. I was looking at uh, Doolittle's pitch velocity charts, 94 miles an hour for his uh, four-seam fastball in 2012, down to 91 this year, so you're bang on on that. Although his two-seamer seems to be holding its speed a little bit better, but I don't know. I think sometimes we put too much stock in that particular statistic as well. I think there's a lot more to pitching than throwing hard. Ask Greg Maddox about that. But uh, yeah, this is another situation where I guess if you really need to gamble, you could do worse. But gosh almighty, this is uh, this has been a strange year for closers. Uh, also been a kind of uh, of late a bit of a weird year for starting pitcher injuries. Uh, in New York, the Yankees look like they're going to have to do without C.C. Sabathia, not that that's such a big loss. He's on the DL with an arthritic knee. That sounds bad. Uh, Matt Dodge covered the story. Um, I presume that Michael Pineda is going to have something to say about what goes on there, but what are the Yankees going to do with all of these injuries? Well, you're right. In theory, the return of uh, Michael Pineda this past week from the DL makes this easier to deal with, but coming off a forearm strain, he wasn't particularly impressive in his first start back versus Houston. He gave up five runs in four and a third, so it's tough to say whether he can be relied on. Um, as Matt notes, I think we're going to see at least a few spot starts from Brian Mitchell. He's coming off a concussion after being hit with a line drive. You have Adam Warren uh, and more extended work by the bullpen, uh, especially with September roster expansion around the corner. I think Warren may be a pretty good stretch gamble here. He's, he's 
really pitched well over the second half, particularly in, in August. He's going to get a lot of innings, particularly out of the bullpen and perhaps some starts down the stretch. But this is a real messy situation that is going to have that is going to rely on health and bullpen performances over these final five weeks. That Bryant Mitchell line drive that was scary. Uh, Adam Warren has pitched well, and of course there were stories at the time uh, that Adam Warren was pitching well, and they didn't let him keep starting anyway, which uh, raises some concerns. You know, what does the organization know about Adam Warren that I don't? Uh, Carlos Carrasco in Cleveland having a breakout year, the kind of year a lot of people have been expecting. You know, on the DL, he's got shoulder problems, always bad news. What's Cleveland going to do for the rest of the season without Carlos Carrasco? Well, it looks like rookie Cody Anderson uh, is is going to be in that role for the time being. Uh, he got the start in his place. Uh, he was mediocre. He's likely going to continue in this role for now, at least despite what looks like mediocre results and skills shown over nine major league starts this year. Carrasco is obviously a big question mark for the remainder of 2015. I wouldn't be chasing Anderson in here on a mediocre Cleveland team. And finally, jock back to Oakland. Kendall Graveman landed on the DL. He's got an oblique strain. Probably means the end of his season. I guess there's a chance he could come back, but if you're the A's, why would you? So who takes his place uh, in the A's rotation? Yeah, uh, there's been no announcement yet, though. Most reports seem to indicate that it's going to be Aaron Brooks, who actually wasn't bad in his first two major league starts earlier in August before he ran into to Toronto, who has killed a lot of starting pitchers. His inexperience in number five upside make him a risk, though, particularly on a, on a really bad defensive Oakland team and with an iffy bullpen that doesn't project to give him much offensive support either. He's strictly flyer material. Another guy wouldn't be taking a chance on over these last five weeks if you need pitching help. Boy, it's a tough time to try to manage your roster if you have any of these pitchers who've been injured or if you have any pitchers uh, on your fantasy roster who are underperforming. It's hard to find any replacements. It's pretty tough. Uh, Jock, thanks for trying to help us out. We'll talk to you again one more time next Friday. Okay, great, PD. We'll see you then. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis and a speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. He's also our American League reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's our guest expert interview, the one and only Joe Sheehan coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. The right-hander for the Giants throws. Swing and a miss! And that's it! The Giants are world champions as they come pouring out of the dugout. Circling Brian Wilson. The bullpen. Flying in from left center field, dancing, hugging, and celebrating for all you Giants fans, wherever you are, Giants fans, this party is just getting started. Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio wants to hear from you, so we've set up a new email address dedicated to Baseball HQ Radio podcast listeners. Send your email to bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Give us your ideas about new features on the podcast or how we can improve the existing features. Ask a question for one of our expert guests, our regular beat reporters, or our commentators. And if you can record your question as an MP3 or Og Vorbis audio file and send it to us as an attachment, we'll put it in the show. And let us know what guests you'd like to hear on Baseball HQ Radio. In short, Anything you'd like us to know that would help you enjoy Baseball HQ Radio more, you can let us know by emailing us at bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. That's bhqradio at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our feature expert interview, and it's our pleasure to be joined by Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated. Joe, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick, good to talk to you again. How you doing? Doing terrific. Thanks very much. Uh, actually competitive in a fantasy league this year for the first time in a while. My Tell Wars mixed team is doing well. How are your fantasy teams doing? Uh, I My uh, traditional fantasy isn't doing so well. I'm uh, something like 17th in a local 12-team league here with uh, some, some names you probably know, Corey Schwartz being one of them from uh, MLB.com. But I'm doing well in a score sheet league. Uh, big score sheet fan. Love the, the realism there, so I'm kind of happy to be doing well in that league. And uh, I'm trying to think... Uh, that's actually it for me this year. I actually ended up with only two leagues. I read your column recently about score sheet play, and uh, you sure do seem to love it. And I know it's uh, kind of the redheaded stepchild of fantasy baseball in a lot of ways, and that's kind of a shame. I think I kind of think Strat is, which is my other passion, is the the redheaded stepchild. But you know, I think score sheets just uh, it's something you have to seek out. Everybody. It's easy to find a Yahoo League, an ESPN League. It, it, those things are everywhere. But you really have to seek out score sheet. But when you do, it's absolutely worth it because of the additional realism, because of the ability to build your own roster, build your, not just build your roster, but build your lineup, build your pitching usage, the way it works defense into the game. Um, I've played score sheet now, gosh, going back 15 years or so. And uh, I just kind of got back into it the last couple of years, and I absolutely love the heck out of it. I encourage people to, to take a look at it this winter when you're thinking about what fantasy you want to play in 2016. Take a look at score sheet. Uh, it's definitely worth it. Now, I had friends who played Stratomatic and still do, in fact, and they said that the computerization or the online aspect of it really revolutionized the game in making it easier to run. You didn't have to you know, sit, sit with your friend uh, face-to-face rolling those dice for hours at a time, that the computer really um, sped things up. Has the same been true of Scoresheet? Yeah, well, Scoresheet used to obviously send you know, results through the mail, similar to the way you know, you'd swap instru- uh, instruction sheets for Strat through the mail. And not only has it gotten better through what they've done, but there was actually a third-party app that would play your games for you. So instead of kind of going in and just looking at your box score or kind of like holding a piece of paper over your box score and seeing how the game went, there's actually software now where you go in and you watch your game being played, batter by batter. And it's, I'm gonna say, I, I get obsessed about it. Monday afternoons, which is when the, the results come out, I'm just reloading my email constantly for my results to come out and going to the website and just watching my games get played. It is, it, that aspect of it has actually made a, what is already a fun game that much more fun because you're, you know, fantasy, you're watching your 15 games a night, you're watching for your players. That, you essentially get that same experience now with Scoresheet. You're watching your players win or lose games for you. Plus, you have that added aspect, as you said, of having been in control of running decisions, pitching decisions, all those kind of things. Yeah, it really uh, adds a level of verisimilitude to the whole uh, to the whole hobby that rotisserie, for all of its advantages, simply can't match. Yeah, I don't mean to put to put them up against each other. I mean, I play both. I have fun with both. I just, in terms of grabbing my attention and and. You really kind of dig in. It may also be Patrick that I had more success in the score sheet. I think if I was a better roto player, I might feel differently. But uh, no, it, it's just it, the, the realism and that's it. That when you get the results and you actually watch the games get played, it's just so much fun. You kind of you find yourself sitting in front of your computer in an empty house, yelling because your you know, your player hit a hit a home run in the bottom of the night that was unexpected. It's fantastic. Have you ever tried, or do you have any friends who have ever tried the uh, the real intricate general manager type games where you are not only in charge of assembling the roster and putting that aspect of it together, but running the concessions and setting up the parking and the, and that kind of stuff, and the and the measurement is by how many wins you get because that translates to how much money you make. 
I'd never have uh, solely because I'd probably never leave the house again. Uh, and there's a five-year-old in Brooklyn and be a little upset about that. Uh, I, well, maybe she wouldn't. <laughs> uh, but no, I have, I have friends who have played those types of games and they swear by them. They do get up. You do end up getting obsessed with them. You do end up throwing yourself into it. It is, it, it's beyond fantasy baseball. It's almost more something like the Sims where you're, you're building an entire process, an entire community, uh, around your baseball team. Um, I, I've heard they're wonderful to play. I've gone nowhere near them for, like I say, for mental health reasons. I'm with you on that one. How about the daily game, Joe? Are you active in that? And uh, how are you doing if you are? You know, I, I played a little bit at the start of the year, and uh, I found that for me, I didn't enjoy it as much. It affected how I watched the games too much. Um, I put in, a, I put in one team, maybe two on a given night, and instead of watching the games for work reasons or just to enjoy baseball, I was a little bit too obsessive about what my players were doing. And uh, I just I, I found it affect my, enjoy, my enjoyment of baseball. So for me, it doesn't work. Now, I know plenty of people that are playing daily and enjoying it. I mean, it's, we both know because, you know, we know people in the fantasy industry and they're writing about it and they're having success doing it. And God bless them. I mean, I think it's a, it's a great thing. Um, I think the popularity, it's, it's, it's exploded. It's, it's been an incredibly uh, popular thing. But for me, it just if I'm going to do it, I'd almost have to do it full time. I'd almost have to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do, you know, six days a week, and I'm going to put in X number of lineups, and I'm going to commit Y amount of money to it. And I just I feel like that would affect the rest of what I do, whether it's enjoying baseball, going to games, writing about baseball. I feel like it affects those things negatively. It's an interesting point that I hadn't thought of before, but playing fantasy baseball, and especially, as you say, the daily variety, does have an effect on how you watch the game. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, of course, when I was a kid, there was only one game a week, and it was Joe Garagiola and Tony Kubek. And <laughs> even later on, when we could pick and choose our games, I tended to watch Cincinnati games because I was a Cincinnati fan. And I'm still a Cincinnati fan, but I find myself watching Houston and Oakland because I've got Houston's starter and three guys in the Oakland lineup. That's exactly what happens. Or I'll be you know, watching one game, and you know, that's really uh, I'm watching for baseball purposes. But I've stacked four whatevers, and I just keep I'm monitoring that game, and I'm flipping to it all the time. It, it's just it it really queered how I watch the game. Now I do think there are people who are playing enough lineups where they it, it's you've got so many players that it doesn't matter what happens, and you can turn it off, or maybe because that's the only thing you're focused on, it doesn't actually matter. But I just didn't like what it was doing to my work. So you know, maybe I jump in next year. Maybe I, I, I do it a little bit differently. Um, I think this is going to be around for a while. I think I'll have the opportunity to jump in for, for years to come. But uh, I don't know. I just, uh, it, it just wasn't for me. And I was surprised. I fully expected to really enjoy this and, uh, and, and dive into it. It just didn't work for me. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, in your newsletter recently, you looked at all 30 teams in baseball in what you called uh, a preview of the third third of the season. I like how you put that. The season's two biggest surprises as far as teams doing better, I think, have been the Blue Jays and Astros. And I'm curious about what you think of go what's going on in Houston and how real is this breakout season? Well, I mean, when you're 128 games into the season and teams in first place by five and a half games, you can safely call them real. And uh, well, they are what they are. They they kind of they steered into the skid. They were a high strikeout, high power offense, and they went out and got you know, having Evan Gaddis and Colby Rasmus. That's going to make you even more high strikeout, high uh, high power offense. And they lead the league in home runs. They're fifth in the league in slugging. They eyeballing it. I believe the league in power while being last in. 
uh, average and 11th on base percentage. They are a middle-of-pack offense because they hit a ton of home runs. They're very reliant on the long ball. And uh, the sport, I mean, it's the way, particularly now, in a low-on-base percentage environment, you need to be able to score as many runs as possible on one swing of the bat. So they've built a credible offense on the, on the long ball. But the real improvement on the pitching side, the question for them for me this year was, last year, Alex Keiko, Colin Q, were they going to be able to continue pitching well? And would Scott Feldman, who was a you know, reasonable the rotation starter, be able to back them up? Now, Feldman's missed about 10 starts, but you know Keiko's been exactly as good as he was last year, maybe even a little bit better. Colin McHugh's been a little bit worse, but he's been a reasonable middle of the rotation starter. So the pitching improvements in the rotation last year held, and we knew the bullpen would be better. You know, for the first time in a while, the Astros went out and look to improve the bullpen, trying to win. They signed Luke Regerson. They signed Pat Nesher. And it wasn't a ton of money, but getting two credible relievers helped change that bullpen. They acted this year, not perhaps like they were going to win 90 games, but certainly like they expected to win 80, and all of that has paid off. Joe, you mentioned that the Astros have really improved across the board, but the... Uh... The question always is about vulnerabilities, and you mentioned this high strikeout offense. Does that auger uh, dangerous for Houston fans and for the club when they hit the playoffs and they have better pitching to look at, more capable of really ringing up strikeouts against them? No, we have no uh, grasp on what wins and what doesn't win in the playoffs. We've seen any number of teams, uh, all kinds of teams, hitting teams, pitching teams, contact teams, strikeout teams, uh, have some success in the playoffs. There has been something of a trend in the last six years for teams with a better contact rate to do well. Uh, I've been tracking that over pretty much since we went to this high strikeout era back in 2009. And teams with the better, teams with the better regular season contact rate have been winning series, have been winning something like 75% of the series. So that's something to look at. Uh, but it's a small sample and it could, you know, could easily reverse itself. It could just be a, a blip. I will say that, you know, for all the myths about, well, you need to be a certain X in the postseason, most of those go away. And in fact, what we'll often see is that teams will have you know, teams will perform differently in the postseason just out of the blue. Think about the Royals last year. The Royals were a speed and contact team who really beat the Angels by hitting a bunch of home runs. So you know, it happens in the postseason where you know I think the 2002 Angels are another example of this. 2002 Angels were kind of the angel, the the Kansas City Royals of their time, hitting the ball, you know, hitting for average, not hitting for a ton of power. And they got into the postseason. I think they slugged something like 530 in the 2002 postseason. That was the year that Andy Kennedy had the three home run game. So I think it's a it's a mistake to look too deeply as to what teams can and cannot succeed in the playoffs. There's a wide variety of things that can happen. I think the only thing, the most important thing, is you get there. Once you get there, everybody's pretty much even. The other big surprise uh, so far this season has been the Blue Jays, and here it doesn't look like it's really any mystery how they're succeeding. They're scoring five and a half runs a game. They're about a half a run ahead of the field in that regard, and about a game ahead of the, I mean, uh, sorry, a run per game above the average across baseball. And we haven't seen a difference like that since the heyday of the uh, of the Yankees in the mid 2000s. How well does the Blue Jays bashing approach auger for them as they chase a pennant, and again, uh, if at all, into the playoffs? Yeah, I mean, they've got the best offense in baseball, and anytime you can have the best anything in baseball, that's a nice thing to have going into the postseason. Uh, the concern for the Jays is always going to be the the, uh, the, the rotation. And, I mean, I'm actually pretty excited about the bullpen. You know, since getting Aaron Sanchez back and putting him in the bullpen, since getting 
uh, and with Troy Hawkins, it's given them a level of depth that they hadn't had all year. Uh, but the rotation behind Price is going to be a concern. You know, we've seen Mark Burley get knocked around his last couple of starts. You know, Ari Dickey's pitched better, but you know, he's basically been a number four starter since he arrived in Toronto. So, you know, some serious questions about the bullpen there. Excuse me, about the, the pitching staff. The other concern I might have here is the right-handedness of the roster. Uh, you know, in, in pretty much every team now has these power right-handed relievers. Now, some of them throw cutters, but some of them throw sliders. And I think the Jays might be vulnerable to power right-handed relievers, particularly ones who are effective on right-handers. Because, you know, typically, you know, a, if you know, Ryan Goins plays sometimes, Deanna Navarro plays sometimes, Justin Smoke plays most of the time, but this is definitely a team that's heavily right-handed, especially when you know, all the good hitters are right-handed, and they stack those right-handed hitters at the top of the lineup. So if I had one concern about the Jays, it would be their vulnerability to power right-handed relief late in games. Yeah, they, they, uh, so far this year, even those uh, right-handed hitters have done okay against right-handed pitching and, uh, and very well against left-handed pitching. It is going to be interesting. They also seem to me, Joe, to have a bit of a depth issue on offense in that you can see that if Donaldson were to get hurt for any length of time, if Bautista, who has been hurt on and off this year, were to miss a, a serious amount of time, and Carnassian's had some nagging injury troubles, although he's hitting the heck out of the ball lately, it seems like if they lost any one of those guys, the fall off to the next layer of, of of offensive depth is not that great. Right, and you can look at this with a number of teams. I mean, very few teams can back up every single position successfully, and you know we're actually seeing this with the Yankees right now. With you know, you start to see the wear and tear on Alex Rodriguez and, and Mark Teixeira, and they just don't have you know the depth and hitters to make up for that. Uh, most teams are going to be in that, that position. You know, if they, you lose one of your best hitters at a key position, you're probably going to be in trouble. I was a little surprised to let Danny Valencia go for that reason. Uh, obviously, they didn't need another right-handed hitter, but you know, Valencia backed up a couple of infield spots, and he's extremely effective against left-handed pitching. So you know, we'll see if that ends up coming back to bite them. But you know, they did trade for Cliff Pennington. They did trade for Ben Revere. They're trying to improve that bench. And uh, I think the key is going to be, you, know, you mentioned Encarnacion. You know, since getting healthy, he's been raking. So it's just a matter of, thing of keeping him healthy. And uh, you know, one of the things that happens in October is that we don't play as much. So I think that can be a beneficial effect for players who uh, have had that nagging injury. As you go from playing six days a week to playing closer to four to five days a week. Yeah, lots of off days to rest those weary, aching bones. The uh, uh, the acquisition of Revere also in Toronto, at least, played in the media as an attempt to shore up defensively. Colabello is out of left field. Revere is in. You're picking up some uh, glove out there. Do you do you think that shoring up the defense can also be uh, a benefit in the postseason, or is this like everything else you talked about, kind of a too short of a sample to say that anything helps? Well, I mean, anything that makes you better shores up your team. Uh, I mean, that's independent of anything else. Marion swamps everything across the board in October, but you always want to make yourself better. You don't just say, well. You know, variance is crazy in October, so we're not going to worry about getting better. It isn't even so much the Revere pickup that I think about when I look think about the improved defense, and it did improve the defense. But the Devin Travis injury, coupled with the Troy Tulowitzki uh, acquisition, so you went from Reyes and Travis up the middle to Tulowitzki and Goins. That Tulowitzki Goins double play combination is excellent. That is a very, very strong defense, and it's a very big upgrade over before. Nothing against Devin Travis, but Ryan Goins is a superior defensive second baseman. Um, and then when you put Smoke and Donaldson on the corners, the Jays' infield now is one of the best, uh, you know, with Goins playing, is one of the best defensive infields in the game. So, you know, through intentional trades, 
through coincidence, through injury, they've actually dramatically upgraded their defense as the season's gone on. In Kansas City, they have an interesting situation. Last year, of course, they surprised us by running to the very edge of the world title. They're even better this year, at least to look at their uh, regular season record. It wasn't too long ago that analysts around the game were calling for Dayton Moore's head, suggesting that he didn't know what he was doing and that the team was doomed without a front office overhaul. Now the team is the toast of the game. Uh, analysts love them, and Dayton Moore is being hailed as some kind of branch Ricky. You talk to Randy Jezierly all the time. He's a Royals analyst par excellence. What what's going on with the Royals? Who are the real Royals here? I think the whole Brent Rickey thing's an overbid, and I think that you could have fired Dayton Moore a year ago and been completely justified. Uh, if we just look, if we just look at what he's done over the last year, and I think that the one trade that you've got to look at Dayton Moore and said he absolutely killed it was the Zach Grinke trade. Picked up Alcides Escobar. Picked up. Uh, Lorenzo Cain picked up Jake Odorizzi, who ended up as part of the Wade Davis trade, which I think it's going to it is going to go down in history as the Wade Davis trade now. But if you look, I mean, they acquired Wade Davis. Wade Davis had failed as a starter and been a dominant reliever, and they put him back in the rotation. And they were actually going to put him back in the rotation last year uh, before there were I believe it was the Luke Koshaver injury that ended up having them put him in the in the in the bullpen. So. Uh, you look at even last winter's moves that were highly criticized. Edson Volquez, basically, you know, the ERA is good, but he's, his FIP is higher. He doesn't have a very good strikeout-to-walk ratio or a strikeout rate. He's essentially a league average, league average minus starter. Uh, you know, Kenji Morales worked, worked out, but Alex Rios didn't. And combined, I think that, you know, he kind of just kind of shrugged his shoulders. It, he took two shots, and one of them worked out, one of them didn't. Uh, you look at uh, you know, I did like some of the secondary picks, Chris Medlin, uh, Chris Young. Uh, I think we're going to see Medlin be an important part of this team going forward. The Dayton Moore as genius narrative, I think, is definitely overblown. Um, I think he's probably a better GM than guys like me thought he was two years ago. But a lot of the uh, there's been a lot of serendipity as to what and what's happened with the Royals the last couple of years. I think it's important to note that they have had some trouble developing players. I mean. It's nice that Hosmer and Mustakas are having good years this year. They're having the you know, maybe the, arguably the best years of their careers, but you know they also have a lot. They also have two thousand unimpressive at bats behind them. Uh, it's Yordano it, Ventura and Danny Duffy haven't come along the way they've expected them to. They've had some trouble developing pitchers, which is why they've had to go out and sign Volquez and uh, you know they, they picked up Guthrie on a DFA and they extended him and they've had to trade for Johnny Cueto. I think it's important to take a realistic view as to you know what Dayton Moore has done here. Well, that said, I mean the Royals have a very good team, and, uh, and they they certainly do things that nobody else does. They put the best defense on the field. They have the best seventh through ninth, seventh inning through ninth inning bullpen. They never strike out and they never walk, and it's it's a game that nobody else is playing right now. And it's worth saying that in this time, you know they built a league average offense and excellent run prevention that way. I thought the Ben Zobrist acquisition was uh, definitely helped that team an awful lot with Alex Gordon coming back. They're going to look uh, quite a bit stronger with Zobrist in the lineup. Both Cueto and Zobrist were surgical strikes. It wasn't just flailing about to to just pick up guys at the deadline. They actually targeted the two things they needed more than anything else, which were a number one starter and a second baseman. Now Zobrist played some outfield in the Gordon in the absence of Gordon, but assuming Ned Yost does the right thing. And upon Gordon's return, put Zobrist to second base. This is now going to be a very, very strong offense. So, you know, we'll see how Ned Ned Yost 
you know, I think Nagios is a better manager today than he was a year ago. Um, you know, some of the mistakes he made towards the end of last year, he kind of stopped making. He's been better about getting the bullpen into good situations. He's actually going to have the luxury here down the stretch of giving guys rest, especially in that bullpen, and making sure everybody's set to go. Remember, they had to play to the end of the season last year just to make the playoffs. They clinched, I believe it was on the Friday, the last Friday of the season. This year, they're going to cruise through September. They're probably going to lock up the number one seed, although the, the Jays might have something to say about that. And uh, they're going to be as positioned for October as any team. So it's it's a different kind of year for them. And I'm curious to see you know, how, if they are able to take advantage of that and be fresh when uh, October begins. You described the Pittsburgh Pirates in that very tough National League Central, and you said the sum of the parts appears to be substantially greater than the whole. What did you mean by that? You look at the individual performances, and you kind of scratch your head, like, you know, this is this doesn't, you look at the statistics, and you're like, well, this doesn't seem like it should be uh, a team with the third best record in baseball. Uh, but, you know, they do a lot of things. Christina Carl at, uh, at ESPN did a really good piece on them uh, last weekend talking about, you know, they, they, they pitch inside. They shift more than any team in baseball, so they put their defense in the way of, of the baseball as well as any team. Uh, they're very good at what they do. They kind of have this holistic is the word I'm looking for, this overall approach to playing the game where it, does, it doesn't seem to be showing up in the individual stats but necessarily, but they're getting outs and they're scoring runs, and it's, it's pretty impressive. Um, I think Clint Hurdle, who still has some tactical issues, has been one of the leaders in terms of working with the front office. We think about the modern model of a manager where he's not the, the general, he's not the, the, the imperial manager. He's actually somebody who's part of a front office team. Uh, the A's in Oakland, the Rays with Joe Madden initially, now with Kevin Cash, these front offices kind of were the, the models for that. And I think Clint Hurdle took that a step further by being kind of a veteran of the game, being kind of this old-school guy who got to Pittsburgh and then learned how to work with the front office. He's implemented a lot of the work that the front office there has done under uh, not just Neil Huntington, but Dan Fox and uh, the uh, the smart Joe Sheehan, and really have a tremendous analytic, analytic staff there. Uh, uh, Mike Fitzgerald's another guy on their, on their analytics team. And he's just the work that Hurdle has done implementing their ideas has been a big part of the Pirates' success the last three years. You mentioned that Hurdle has been prone to some tactical errors in game. Uh, Ned Yost was a whipping boy for that, uh, and rightly so, especially last year. I've seen Mike Matheny of the Cardinals critique for his tactical decisions. There are others. These are good teams with a, a chance to go a long way in the playoffs. How important do you think managerial competence in games be in the late season races, and especially when the playoffs start? The greater the importance of a game, the greater the importance of a decision. And when you're playing a best of, best of five, best of seven, you know, those those decisions that tend to wash out over the course of 162 games rise to become very important. And, uh, you know, Mike Mahaney's not a great tactical manager. Uh, Clint Hurdle, not a great tactical manager. Just a lot of these guys who just... Uh, they they're just not very, they get locked into the ideas that we have nowadays about roles and they don't adjust that for the important the greater importance of games. Now, you know, we'll see if that changes. Ned Yost was a pretty bad tactical manager on August fifteenth last year, and by October fifteenth he was making better decisions. Uh but optimal decisions all the time, but better. So we'll see if these guys change. But one of the things that he's gonna have an advantage uh with is that he's got a deeper bullpen this year. Uh I like what the Cardinals did picking up Steve Cishek, uh Jonathan Broxton can Pitch pretty well for them, and just a handful of innings. Um, you go with you 
pair that up with, you know, uh, Segrist and Rosenthal in the 8th and ninth. plus they're going to have to put one starter in the bullpen uh, out of their, t- their their great rotation. Yeah, he's he's going to have a... It, it's, it's hard to push the wrong button when all the buttons are that good. That's right. <laughs> Every button you press, you get a cup of coffee, and that's what you're... The vending machine from heaven, I guess. Uh, uh, are there any other teams that could lose an edge for managers who don't make good tactical decisions during games? Well, assuming they make the playoffs, I mean, Don Mattingly. I mean, I'm looking ahead to a possible Dodgers, Cardinals, NLCS, and I just I, there's not enough aspirin in the world. Uh, Don Mattingly versus Mike Matheny. I mean, we're going to see them match up again, and I just I don't even. <laughs> these are two guys who will make the big mistake. Don Mattingly is not only is he a bad tactical manager, he's actually been. It seems like he's been a pretty bad in-season manager in terms of managing personnel. One of the biggest problems the Dodgers have right now is that they're not playing their best players. You know, they're they're benching Jock Peterson when he really. He's hitting for a low average, but he's got a 400 on base percentage. Um, they're, they've been jerking Yasiel Puig in and out of the lineup uh, to play Carl Crawford, who's just a contract at this point. Uh, you know, they're playing Jimmy Rollins, who's a replacement level player, when they could be playing Hernandez or Corey Seager or Jose Peraza, any number of better options at shortstop. Uh, the, the, the preference for veterans over rookies, which is you know, kind of bad manager 101. Is you know a real big thing for 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 uh, Mattingly there, and I think because I think we're seeing some of you know Mattingly wasn't there for early Joe Torrey. Mattingly uh, his last season was like ninety five. Torrey was hired that winter. He wasn't there for early Joe Torrey when Joe Torrey was playing, you know Jeter and Bernie Williams and Jorge Posada and Andy Pettit and all the guys who became part of that team, part of that championship team. Mattingly came back to the Yankees later on when Joe Torrey really had kind of ossified into uh, somebody who wanted to only deal with his veterans, and also to a guy who blamed the players. He threw Alex Rodriguez under the bus you know, towards the, a couple of times toward the end of his uh, tenure. And Manley really seems to have picked up those Joe Torre traits, as opposed to you know, the, young Joe, the younger Joe Torre traits, which were you know, putting faith in young players. So I, I think he's an awful tactical manager, and I think he's you know, pretty bad at handling his players as well. Any teams out there, or I should say which teams out there, do you think are going to get an edge because their managers are good at that kind of thing? I'm sure Joe Madden's name will come up, but uh, who, who are the managers that you really think are giving their teams an edge in that regard? I mean, Joe Madden's a better tactical manager than the field. I think he was a better tactical manager in 2008 than he later became. Um, he did some really fun stuff with David Price in that 2008 postseason. That was impressive. Uh, but I think he'll be an asset for the, uh, for the Cubs. Yeah, John Gibbons um, has at various times been aggressive with the bullpen. Um, I want to say it was with B.J. Ryan years ago in his first stint in Toronto. He was using Ryan for uh, for five and six out, you know, four and five out saves at a time when everybody was just using their closer for three outs. Um, I, I think he, he can be effective in that uh, boat. I think he's trying to find seventh, eighth, ninth roles with this current group, though. So you know, we'll see if he gets locked into that. You know, A.J. Hinch is interesting. Now, that, that's a team that doesn't play a lot of small ball. But and in the bullpen, they actually have a lot of parts where none of them are so great where you'd lock them into roles. So, you know, I, I think Hinch has the opportunity to maybe be creative in the postseason. Uh, I'd love to see them put Lance McCullers in the bullpen. That's kind of – I know McCullers has been great as a starter, but uh, he would give them that one extra power arm they could really use in the bullpen. So we'll see what they do there. But uh, it, it's, it's tough. I mean, you look at, you know, there's so many. There really could be a lot of very bad tactical managers in the in the postseason, and you know guys like Madden and even Hinch really stick out in that group. 
Has anybody in the sabermetric community and the baseball research community tried to quantify the value of managerial decisions in game insofar as it affects uh, team success? Uh, you know, Chris Jaffe, uh, not to be confused with Jay, wrote a book about managers, and he did come up with a, a scoring system that uh, rated all managers. And it's an interesting read. I, I apologize. I can't come up, I cannot remember the name, of the, the name of the book at the moment. But that's been one attempt to kind of quantify the decision-making. One thing it's hard for, let, let's not forget, as much focus as we put on managerial decisions in the postseason, that is just part of the job. There is the... Yeah, management of people, which I would not—I would not say—is unimportant. Uh, it's just when we get down to the to the very important games, the other stuff takes precedence. But you know, there's seven months of you know massaging egos and uh, you know uh, taking care of people that also matters. And this is actually why you know I look at it dramatically and I say, well, he doesn't do either part of the job well. So you know, why is he keeping it? Whereas you know, I might look at uh, well, Tory. Troy was a very frustrating tactical manager. When, when he didn't have, he had a push-button bullpen early on with Rivera and Wetland, and later on, Nelson Stanton uh, Rivera. But once he didn't have a push-button manager, a uh, push-button bullpen anymore, he became kind of a very frustrating tactical manager. But he still seemed to have uh, a good way with people. So sometimes there's a trade-off. Uh, I think the, a lot of the defenders of Ned Yost have made this point that you know whatever his tactical flaws, he does seem to have gotten you know these young players developed. And even in Milwaukee, Ned Yost brought along you know, Prince Fielder and and Ricky Weeks and guys like that. So uh, there are two parts of this job, and you know to whatever extent we can quantify one of them, it is very very hard to quantify the other. Do you foresee a day in baseball, and I think it might be getting there a little bit now where they get more into the NFL model or even the NBA model, where you don't have kind of this single manager making all of these kinds of decisions and more and more of it devolves onto more specialized coaches, player development coaches, uh, this kind of thing, to optimize everybody's position in the managerial hierarchy? I've been yelling for this for a while, and I think that I would really love to see the the, idea, the concept of the be, the bench coach already exists, but it's really not clear what the bench coaches do. And I think that many, if not most, if not all, major league baseball managers could use, you know, Joe Sheehan just to pick a name, sitting next to them in the dugout, kind of with a with a grasp of what the baseball system is, the importance, you know, of run, you know, knowing the run environment tables, thinking. You know, are we going to bunt with two high strikeout batters coming up and a high strikeout pitcher on the mound when a single is highly unlikely? Things like that that don't seem to be a part of the skill sets of managers today. You, managers are basically not hired based on their ability to think about those things. And I do think that 28 and a half teams at least would benefit from having a guy like that in the dugout and certainly there's a lot of smart people that that could that could have that job and that that either managers are going to have to start being hired based on that and having some of those skills or they're going to have to start putting somebody next to the dugout i don't know if it's going to happen in the next five years but i think it'll happen in the next 15 to 20 i think you're going to see coordinators for lack of a better term decision scientists to use the astros term for <laughs> for sigmado in the dugout making these, if not making these decisions, kind of elbowing the manager in the ribs and saying, hey, don't do this. 
I just remember uh, I used to follow hockey, not so much anymore, but for years the model in hockey was the, the, the lone coach standing behind doing all of the thinking for the team and exhorting the players and, and doing all of this kind of work. And all of a sudden somebody, I suspect it might have been the Detroit Red Wings because they were pretty smart about this kind of stuff, all of a sudden they had four guys back there. They had a coach who was looking after the defensive players. They had a coach who was looking after the forwards. They even had a specialist for the power play. And, uh, and all of a sudden it's a team of coaches back there and these teams started to succeed and now it's I believe it's ubiquitous in the NHL I'm not sure but uh, I I can't imagine that somebody won't think it'll it'll end up being a help in uh, baseball as well Joe before we leave this part of the of the segment which do you think is the most disappointing team in baseball so far this year oh that's easy <laughs> thanks for teaming me up I mean the Washington Nationals they were supposed to be the best team in baseball, and they're just barely over 500. They're six and a half games behind a Mets team that really isn't that good. The Mets team has been beaten up on bad teams. Uh, obviously, injuries have played a part. Uh, the Nationals only this week played their projected starting lineup. They played, you know, Donald Spann came off the disabled list on Tuesday, and he played, they had their starting eight for the first time all season. And, you know, that's some of it. I'm not going to say that it's not, but uh, disappointing performances from guys when they've been on the field, Jason Wirth, Ryan Zimmerman. Ian Desmond has fallen off a cliff. Uh, you know, some of the pitchers haven't worked out. Doug Fister's kind of, he had his little peak, and now he's gone back to being kind of a, a guy who gets knocked around. It, you know, Steven Strasburg's had a disappointing season, also with injuries. Matt Williams had a terrible year. He's an awful tactical manager, really one of the worst in baseball. He's cost them some important games. You throw it all together, and it's just a total. Uh, the, the whole package is disappointing, especially when you consider that you know if they could have just, they didn't have to be the best team in baseball. Eighty six, eighty seven wins probably would have gotten it done, and it, they're probably not even going to get there at this point. Um, I would have fired Williams already. I, I'm not somebody who fires a manager during a season. I almost never advocate for that. But when you look at the Nationals wasting a Strasburg Harper year, then Strasburg is a free agent at the end of next year. Uh, it's really a shame that they're they're going to come down to this. They had they had more than enough talent to win this division going away. And before we move on, the book by Chris Jaffe is called "Evaluating Baseball's Managers: A History and Analysis of Performance in the Major Leagues, 1876 through 2008." It's available at Amazon, like everything else in the world is available at Amazon. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated. And Joe, you wrote a really important item in the newsletter about the relationship between the media and the players, and you especially noted that media can freely attack players individually or as a group without any concern, but if you get after the owners, an owner, or a commissioner, you stand an excellent chance of backlash that has career implications. And of course, we're all familiar with the Bill Simmons example after he made what turned out to be some very accurate criticisms of Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner. What is the dynamic here between the media and the players, and why should fans care about it? There are precious few independent outlets anymore. Uh, Sports Illustrated is doesn't have any rights. Yahoo doesn't have any rights. And even though if there you have talent at both places that, you know, work with the leagues. It's yeah, you know, so much of our sports content comes through ESPN and comes through Fox where they have vested interests in the success of the league. And, you know, to some extent they're, you know, beholden to the leagues. So when a Bill Simmons says very accurate things about Roger Goodell and gets fired as opposed to, say, Skip Bayless saying incredibly indefensible things about LeBron James, the contrast there is pretty stark. You can say anything you want about a player. no matter. And you know, we've seen this in the coverage of Alex Rodriguez. 
We've seen it in the coverage of a number of players that have become kind of the hated guys. They're just absolutely viciously beaten down. But if you go after an owner, if you go after a commissioner, you just there's backlash, and it's because the 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 rights holders and the people covering the game are basically one and the same, uh, and it's it's a problem. And we desperately desperately need a strong independent journalistic voice. There are individuals out there. Um, I don't particularly believe in the what the story of witch hunt hunts have done, but I think you have to credit uh, Mark Fenero Wada for the work that he's done. Uh, you know, it's the, these guys really do go out there and try to get at the truth. Um, you know, I look at Jeff Passan at, at Yahoo, and I think he's out there trying to get at the truth. And there just aren't enough guys like that. And you know, one of the things I'm trying to do in the newsletter, I'm not a reporter, but uh, it, 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 it's independent. And I'm trying to say, hey, look, you know, you're going to get anything I write is going to be because I want to write it and I believe it to be true. And you don't have to worry that I'm writing it because I'm, I'm not going to avoid topics because you know, I've got a vested interest in X, Y, Z, and I'm not going to shy away from, you know, writing about uh, difficult topics for X, Y, Z. So we need more outlets like that. The, uh, I think ESPN does a wonderful job presenting the games. And, you know, I think Fox does a wonderful job presenting the games. And there's a lot of value in that. But we can't expect that these entities are going to give us the best sports journalism and they're not going to give us the truth. And with all of the issues that we have in sports today. I mean, think about the, the, the recent coverage of the Milwaukee Bucks extorting the state of Milwaukee for, for an arena. You think about the various uh, issues of jurisprudence of players in, in any league. You know, the, the things, the bad things that players do that the leagues would rather we not talk about, but these are the things that we have to talk about. Uh, you think about, the obviously, the concussion issue in the NFL or, you know, MLB's, you know, various stadium issues, uh, various, you know, bad market issues. You know, what are we, we don't, they don't want us to talk about Oakland. They don't want us to talk about Tampa. They don't want us to talk about Miami. These are all things we have to be talking about. And I'm not sure that it's going to happen if the rights holders and the largest media outlets are the same people. I understand all of that, but the average Joe fan uh, in a lot of instances says, I don't care about all that stuff. I just want to sit down with my beer and my potato chips and watch uh, watch the ball game. Why should the fan be as interested in all of these these real important stories as they currently appear not to be? And I understand that part of the reason they're not interested in it is because, as you say, they're not seeing enough of it. But do you think the fans are engaged in those kind of stories about the concussions and about the stadium financing and that kind of stuff, or do, do they need a wake-up call as well? I think it's irrelevant. I, well, do they need a wake-up call? Yes. Uh, but I, don't, I guess I don't care whether Joe Fan wants to hear it or not. It's my job to write about it. Um, it's not my job to pander. Lord knows we see enough of that in the elections down here where instead of talking about the really important issues, we get sidetracked into any number of, of silly things. Um, I think it's great to watch. If you want to watch sports for the sports, that's great. But I also think it's important that with that, you get a certain dose of, you know, these are important issues that eventually affect you, particularly the, state, I mean, the stadium financing thing, you know, affects fans all around the country. And you know, we don't write about it enough. I mean, some of these stadium financing deals are incredibly dirty in terms of not letting fans, not letting the, the citizenry vote on it. Or the, citiz- the citizenry votes on it, votes against it four times, and then they shove it through the legislature without a vote anyway. So, no, I do think that whether Joe Fan wants to hear it or not, these things are important, and, uh, and we should write and talk about them. In fact, I think the argument that the fans don't want to hear about them is exactly the kind of thing that 
you know, a, a rights holder is going to say to justify minimizing coverage of it. Oh, they, they just want the games. They don't want the stuff polluting the games. Hey, you know something? The things that we don't want to hear about are important, and I, I, just, I don't like the argument that, well, the fan doesn't want to be bothered with it. I think that's a terrible argument, and uh, it, it's one that really we should, we should fight against. In the article, Joe, you also said the most important issues in baseball aren't the shifts and the, all the stuff we tend to talk about here on the show, uh, but the the real important issue is who get gets what share of a, of what is a now a multi billion dollar pie. Why is the distribution of the money the most important issue to you? Because <laughs> baseball doesn't exist if people aren't showing. I mean, you know, baseball would still be. I don't even know an example. Um, ultimate frisbee if people weren't showing up to watch the games if it wasn't popular you it would be a hobby and it's not a hobby it's a 10 billion dollar industry and all of the decisions that you see made are about getting pieces of that pie all of, they say there's the baseball game and that that the things we talk about with the game of baseball are very important but much more important are issues of you know how do we distribute talent that comes into the industry, i.e. international amateurs, U.S. amateurs through the draft. You know, we're taking the rights away of you know, 1,200 teenagers every year. How do we compensate them for that? You know, what's the fairest way to do that while balancing the interests of the league? What's the fairest way to you know, assign the rights of 16-year-old Dominican kids and make sure that everybody ends up whole? What's the fairest way to you know, build a new stadium? What's, you know, who should be responsible for the financing of a new stadium? Should it be the owner of, this, of, of a business that could probably sell for a billion dollars tomorrow? Or should it be you know, the, the citizens making $32,000 a year who are going to be taxed for it? These are incredibly important issues. Baseball, all sports, really, but baseball in particular is you know, part of the social fabric. And you can't just say, you can't just stand up and sing take to the ball game and talk about the national pastime and then ignore the fact that baseball is intertwined with the local and national, local state and national economies. I just uh, want to preface this next question by saying I don't believe this, but I hear it a lot, including from educated people, baseball fans, and so forth, and their, their position on the distribution of the income in sports is LeBron James makes $40 million a year. I don't feel sorry for him. Yeah, I... <laughs> I got in trouble, gosh, was it about 11, 12 years, 13 years ago now? I made a comment that uh, it was disdainful towards the uh, the general knowledge base and attitude of sports fans. And if you people can Google it if they'd like. I'll just Google the, the, the letters EIB in my name, and it'll probably pop up. Uh, fundamentally, people just don't understand the economics of sports, and uh, maybe they shouldn't, but the economics of sports are set by supply and demand. The revenue is there. The money is going to go somewhere. If you suddenly passed a law that said athletes couldn't make more than a million dollars a year, all that would do is transfer money from the players to the owners. So the revenue is there. The players are creating the value. Therefore, they should get the money. You've been pretty forthright, Joe, on the relative weakness of the Baseball Players Union and other sports unions, but in the Baseball Players Union, since Donald Fair left, the uh, union has had a lot of giveaways, a lot of givebacks, and certainly a tremendously declining share of overall revenue in the sport. Uh, At one point, they were the highest share of revenue. Now they're the lowest by quite a wide margin. The players in the union uh, recently elected former player Tony Clark. How do you think Tony Clark is doing in the role so far? 
seems to have mastered the art of the strongly worded press release. Uh, but we haven't really seen the union put to a test yet, and we'll see them in the next. The next negotiation is going to, I think, be a difficult negotiation. Uh, player share of revenue is slipping towards 40% when it was 60% uh, 15 years ago. That's, you know, I can do math. Uh, $200 billion being left on the table every year. Uh, the players have to work to get a share of that back, whether it's through you know, modifying the free agency rules, whether it's raising the the payroll uh, cap, thre- uh, the the payroll tax threshold, any number of things they can do, raising the minimum. But the players are getting essentially cut out of the growth of uh, of revenue, so that's going to be Clark's you know uh, first charge. And you know we'll see if they get into some of the side issues about you know uh, I don't want to say side issues, but we'll see if the players union decides to you know take a stand on behalf of amateur players. Um, I know a lot of people want the players to take a stand on behalf of minor leaguers. I actually don't agree that that. I think there are two completely different jobs. Um, it's the Major League Baseball Players Association for a reason. So, But there are just a lot of things that uh, Clark's going to be faced with here. And the union's done a terrible job over the last uh, 12, 13 years of defending its interests. I will say that uh, the history of players' associations in all sports, the ones run by players tend to fail. The ones run by labor lawyers tend to, tend to succeed. And anybody who wants to uh, get more information about that, um, uh, Marvin Miller's book, A Whole New Ball Game, is fantastic in that regard. And so is uh, The Lords of the Realm, John Gelyar's book. This is It goes back quite a ways, but it reads like it could have been written the day before yesterday. It's uh, it's certainly an eye-opener. And, and if you're a baseball fan, it's really incumbent upon you to understand how this works. I really recommend that people should look into this. And I, I have a question for you about the NBA Players Union. They, after uh, some fairly difficult negotiations, and losing ground, elected a new executive director, a labor lawyer, as you said. And she recently said, uh, very earlier in her tenure, she said the owners are expendable in her terms because it is, as you said, the players who create the value because that's who the fans are paying to watch. This seems really obvious to me, so why do you think her statement was presented as so jarring in the sports media? Since Donald Fear left, and even you know, the end of Donald Fear's Rain. He wasn't exactly throwing bombs. Um, we're, we've gotten used to the heads of sports unions, the players' unions, really being pretty docile. You know, this whole cooperative, uh, the idea that you're supposed to cooperate with the owners. And frankly, it's not supposed to be. A labor-management relationship is, by definition, confrontational. You want it to be confrontational. Both, both sides are trying to get their piece of the pie and trying to represent their interests. I think Michelle Roberts has been the first person in a while to come out and say, you know, this is BS. This is my guy. My guys present the uh, are the value in this league, and owners are expendable, and we know this because every time a team comes up, you know, if thirty NBA teams decided tomorrow they want to sell, they want it out, there would be three hundred guys looking to buy. So yeah, owners are expendable, players are not, and uh, I think I'm very curious to see how the NBA negotiations go because Michelle Roberts is uh, probably the closest thing to Marvin Miller we've seen in a long time. Yeah, it is going to be interesting to watch. And uh, as I understand it, she she even posited that if the players were to get locked out by the NBA owners, they could easily set up a league. It's not that hard to find field houses, you know, college uh, field houses. You could sign a TV contract with anybody you like, and you could run a league without the owners and basically run the whole thing as a co-op. And I think that has to scare the hell out of the owners because they're businessmen and they must realize she's right. I think this is the one difference the the NBA, MLB, and MLB in particular have this in their back. We've already seen the reason the NFL has a problem, NFL players have a problem, is that in 1987 it was shown that 
American sports fans don't care, and you can dress up truck drivers and box haulers as football players, and they'll watch. Um, and ever since then, the NFL basically has been broken. The replacement player situation in 87 permanently made the case to the NFL players that you guys are replaceable. I think they're replaceable in a way that MLB and NBA players are not. Man, I remember those strike replacement games with 4,000 people in the stands and, uh, and, and ratings down around zero. Am I mistaken in that? No, they were, they were attended. And honestly, by the time the third week of it came around, you know, more and more players were crossing the picket line to go back and play. It was, it was a huge, I would say it was a huge success artistically, but I'm telling you, it, it worked. It showed the players that, that as long as we can put the games on. And what would have happened is had it continued, you know, the players would have gotten a little bit better and fans would have grown attached to some of them. And eventually, you, you just you focus on what's on, the, what's on the field in front of you. I think you can get away with that in football. Part of it is they all wear helmets. And frankly, a large percentage of NFL players or football players are, you know, that's what I'm looking for. Not interchangeable, but... Uh, Fungible? I mean, fan, yeah, fans don't care about the strong safeties. The strong safety could be anybody. You know, there's a handful of stars that people care about, and you know, I wonder if it would work today. Uh, it's interesting because you know, back then fantasy football was a very small thing. Would it work today? Uh, you think about one week fantasy football, and the, you know, we just started this talking about daily fantasy. Does it really matter if you just put a set of dollar values out? People are probably going to play whether it's guys they've heard of or guys they haven't heard of. So, you know, I wonder how the dynamic would be if the NFL ever tried that today. Be curious to see, and boy, I'm with you and looking forward to Michelle Roberts negotiating the next NBA uh, collective bargaining agreement. I think it's going to be very, very interesting. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, before I let you go, uh, I want to ask you some questions about players with a fantasy focus. First of all, among big league position players, who are your top pleasant surprises? Uh, I would look at A.J. Pollock. He's, he's the, he was a, the first-round pick out of Notre Dame a few years back and kind of you know, really didn't have a whole lot of uh, you know pub coming through the minors. And he was very good last year before an injury, and he's quietly been one of the best players in the National League this year. And he kind of contributes across the board. He's an excellent defensive center fielder, hits for some pop, hits for average, runs a little bit. Um, I never saw this kind of season coming out of him, and it's it's really been fun to watch. I like when I like when that happens. I like to get surprised. I mean, we all know great young players come through. We all know veterans have good years. But when a guy who's been relatively low profile steps up and have a year, has a year like this, it's exciting. So yeah, Pollock's the one guy I look at. And also, I was wrong on J.D. Martinez. Um, I dismissed J.D. Martinez as strong 2014 as a half-season fluke, and he's gone on to basically repeat it this year, maybe even be a little better. So uh, that, that's been a surprise. How about some pleasant surprises among the, the pitchers? I didn't think... You know, talk about J.D. Martinez last year. Jake Arrieta, I didn't think was going to be this good. I think Jake Arrieta would establish himself as a major league starter. He's been one of the five or six best pitchers in the game. Uh, the, the, just been incredible uh, velocity, the breaking stuff. Um, he's shown himself to be durable. Uh, I did not see that coming out of him, and it's been fantastic. And then, you know, collectively, I think the Mets top three. Um, I think we knew individually that Matt Harvey, Jacob Degrom, Noah Syndergaard were good pitchers, but seeing them three nights in a row in some of these series and you know the, the energy that they create uh, when you've got three you know number two or better starters going back to back with that dominant velocity uh, the ability to get strikeouts I think collectively that's been a surprise at how good they've been 
I grabbed uh, Noah Syndergaard in the tout mix draft in the reserve rounds and just had to sit and wait until they called him up, which I thought would happen. And, I, of course, it has been a pleasant surprise. My only concern, Joe, is when you watch him, it seems like he has a lot of trouble getting deeper into games because of his uh, pitch counts are very high all, all the way through. And he gets his nine strikeouts, but he's doing it in five innings. Gosh, if he ever gets to eight innings, uh, they may have to uh, figure out new ways to, to count. <laughs> I think that eventually... Um yeah, that's the kind of thing a young pitcher learns, basically. You learn how to, pretty much all pitchers come in throwing, you know, that's as fast as they're ever going to throw, starting pitchers. And they trade velocity for endurance over time. If we were going to have a 2016 fantasy baseball draft tomorrow, Joe, a mixed league draft, and they said, Joe, you get first pick, who are you taking? I would be sorely tempted to take Carlos Correa. Uh, I'm a positional value guy, and uh, I really believe that you, you build, even in you know, roto leagues, you build from the middle out. Uh, but I'd probably stick with Trout. I think there's a safety in Mike Trout at this point where you know the floor for him is just higher than it is for anybody else. And, and we, you can't win a draft in the first round, but you can certainly lose it. So I, w- I would still be taking Trout. Uh, who would you take as your first pitcher, and would any pitchers be in the first round for you? Yeah, I think that you know we certainly saw this this year. Um, I think there'll be more hitters in next year's draft. But certainly I think you saw there was a tier of about six hitters this year before you had to start considering pitchers. That might be eight or nine next year, but certainly still you can justify taking <coughs> excuse me, uh, Clayton Kershaw towards the end of the first round. You make arguments for David Price and Max Scherzer as well because of the strikeout totals. Those, those would be the top three. And I do think that you know, at least one or two of those <coughs> excuse me, leak into the back end of the first round. Which player do you think you could put into the first round next year that might surprise fantasy owners, or have you already said, in Carlos Correa? I don't think that's going to be a surprise. I think Carlos Correa is going to be on everybody's uh, you know, top 10, top 11 next year, maybe even higher. Um, I might look at Xander Bogarts. I've been talking about Bogarts a lot the last few years. I've been a big fan. I think that his development was was, was uh, stultified, use that word, uh, by the Stephen Drew signing last year. If the Red Sox had just left him at shortstop, he would have been fine. You're talking about a shortstop who's a legitimate 300 hitter who still just 23 next year, which is an age where power sometimes takes, takes a jump through. I'm not sure he's going to run, but a shortstop who could hit 300 with potentially 20, 25 home runs. And presumably next year, the Red Sox lineup will be better, which will provide run and RBI opportunities for Bogarts. I think Bogarts... I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'd have to look. Obviously, this is all context and league-specific, but I, I think he's the one guy I look at and say, I'll probably be drafting him higher than anybody else will. And the same question, Joe, but which player would you leave out of the first round that might surprise some owners? I'm, well, I don't know. Do you think Miguel Cabrera is still a first-round pick? I think he will go in the first round, but I, I don't know that he should. He's a thirty. He's thirty-three. He'll be thirty-three next year. We saw the injury issues this year. He's a big guy. I think the lower body injuries are probably going to continue to be an issue for him. So if you draft him, you can say yes, we're going to get a three thirty batting, you know, three twenty, three thirty batting average. I think the raw skills are still there, but are you going to get you know one hundred and fifteen games and you know just twenty-two home runs and just seventy-five RBIs because of the missing playing time? He's somebody I would be avoiding in the first round next year. Joe, this has been terrific. Uh, what are you working on for the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter in the next little while? You know, for the next few weeks, it really ends up being reactive. You know, what's going on in the pennant races, kind of taking a look at some of the issues. This year, I, I, this week, I worked on the, uh, the Jock Peterson, Yasiel Puig, really the Peterson decision in, in Los Angeles, looking at Manley's thought process there. There's going to be a lot of that, just, you know, what's the news of the day? Don't do a whole lot of research pieces in August and September. It's just focused on the pennant races and what's happening.
And uh, do you have any deals or anything like that for people who aren't already subscribers, and you should be, to get uh, get a taste of the newsletter? I'll tell you what. You, I didn't actually five seconds ago, but we'll do this. If you send me an email at uh, Sheehan Newsletter, just like it sounds, at Gmail, uh, I mention this, new, mention this, I will give you through the end of the season for $5. So PayPal me $5, use the words Baseball HQ, and you get the next five, six weeks of the newsletter for 5 bucks. There you go. You can't beat a deal like that. Uh, Joe, how can people keep track of you in a more general sense? Uh, you can go to Twitter. Uh, um, I keep trying to get off Twitter, and I keep, uh, keep sucking me back in. That's at Joe underscore Sheehan. Uh, you read me in Sports Illustrated. Uh, I had a piece on Brian Cashman a week ago. I have a piece on the Cubs' success of this year, this week, generally in you know three out of four issues of Sports Illustrated. Um, and then, like I said, the newsletter is always good. And radio stations throughout the country. Uh, you follow me on Twitter, you get information. I tend to do 10 to 12 radio hits a week, uh, national hits, local hits. Uh, something that's a lot of fun for me. I do podcasts like yours. I do Will Leach's. Uh, I've been on baseball today as well. So it's just, you'll probably hear me just stick your head out the window. I'm probably talking about baseball with somebody somewhere. That Will Leach podcast is terrific, isn't it? I, I love Will. Will's a, such a passionate guy, particularly when it comes to baseball. He's kind of refocused the podcast around baseball now. I'm, I'm enjoying it very much this year. Besides uh, Will Leach, what other baseball writers, I'm just curious, have you admired and, and do you still admire? Who do you, who do you follow? Who do you like to read? None. I think they're all idiots. <laughs> no. I, I mentioned Jeff Passan early on, and for reporting, um, I like him. For the beats, uh, Joel Sherman does great work. Pete Abraham does great work. Uh, some of the, I mean, you know, the guys I work with at SI, uh, Lee Jenkins, Tom Ferducci, S.L. Price. I get to work with some amazing people there, and that, that's a real treat for me. Uh, you know, online you've got Jay Jaffe at SI.com. You've got Randy Gisarelli at Grantland. Uh, ben Lindbergh does great work at Grantland. It's it's a tremendous time. Dave Cameron at Fangraphs. David Schoenfield at ESPN.com, Christina Carl at ESPN.com, Mark Simon over there. You know, 25 years ago, we didn't have these options. 25 years ago, you know, it was running with your three quarters in your pocket to go get the national. And now we're just incredibly blessed to have this enormous amount of talent. You really, it's very hard to keep up with all the great talent that's out there. You can certainly devote an awful lot of time to reading about baseball and reading really, really good stuff about baseball. You're right. Joe, before I let you go, who's in the World Series this year and who wins? I'm pretty sure at this point the Blue Jays. I mean, conceding that the playoffs are a crapshoot, the Blue Jays are just a, a machine designed to destroy right now. I think the Blue Jays can come out of the American League. I think the National League is incredibly difficult. Uh, I'm going to go with the Cardinals, which is chalk, but if you told me it was the Dodgers or the Cubs or the Pirates, I wouldn't be surprised. So you have Toronto and St. Louis in the World Series. Joe, thanks a million for doing this. It's always so interesting and so much fun to talk to you, and I'll see you in uh, Phoenix in the fall. Two months away, Patrick. Can't wait. Take care. Joe Sheehan writes the excellent Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and writes for Sports Illustrated. And remember, he has that nice offer. If you email Newsletter at gmail.com and mention the podcast, he'll give you the rest of the season of the newsletter for five bucks. Can't beat that deal. Coming up next, we have our regular weekly talk with Todd. But first, uh, let me tell you a few words about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week, our Playing Time Today roster coverage looks at the rotation in struggling Washington, where Tanner Rourke will replace Joe Ross. We look at the return of Matt Shoemaker to the Angels rotation, and a whole lot more. 
In our Facts and Flukes performance validation, a look at Pittsburgh infielder Jung-Ho Gong, Philadelphia infielder Audubel Herrera, Colorado infielder DJ LeMayhew, and many more players. And our Buyer's Guide Skills assessments include bullpen columnist Doug Dennis's look at the elite class of bullpen pitchers. We also have daily matchups reports, a daily fantasy dashboard, team coverage, and minor league scouting. And of course, we have projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your league and daily fantasy baseball. And it's all only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to once again be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to ESPN Fantasy Sports, Masters Ball, and FantasyAlarm.com. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Great to be here, Patrick. Last week we talked about some roundtables you were doing on ESPN with some experts about daily fantasy, and you did another one just the other day talking about the stats that are overused and the discussion ended up also talking about misused or misunderstood stats in daily fantasy. Uh, What are the stats that people look at when they're planning their rosters that maybe they ought not to be so much? Well, it's not, I think a lot of it isn't so much not to be, but I think misused is maybe a better way of putting. And actually that's the word that I recommended to the editors that, uh, that they use, uh, cause I think it connotes really what the situation is a little bit better. And, uh, the one that, uh, kind of let us off and we were talking about it the most at the beginning was what the, the acronym WOBA weighted on base average, which has sort of become the, the catch all stat for the daily fantasy. What it is, it's a souped up version of on base percentage where all the different components are weighted uh, to match the run matrix such that the, uh, if you, if you correlate WOBA to run scored per team, the correlation's, uh, 0. 0.9, 0. 0.9 or higher year to year. There is a really good correlation between weighted on base average and run scored. So it's, you know, if, if you're looking for one quick number to use in analysis for, for something like daily fantasy, Woba is just people just sort of gravitated towards Woba as that the one metric, the one number that you can look at. A good a good Woba for a for a hitter, uh, if he's got a high Woba, he's likely to get all the necessary stats to get you DFS points, and vice versa for a pitcher. If he gives up a low Woba, he's uh, the team isn't likely to score very many runs against him. And on pay, you know, it seems like a you know neat little stat, and it is. It, if if you realize that it's just an eyeball, you know way to filter sort of test and then really look into a little bit more you know once nerds get a hold of something they find some fault with it and that's kind of what uh what we talked about during the piece some of the faults with woba and one of them it seems to me the problem with this kind of a stat along with the various linear weighted stats is that it's kind of backward looking in that it's using how many singles you got, how many even reaching on error, how many uh, unintentional walks and so forth, and uh, assigns weights to them through some kind of regression, I I presume, and comes up with a, a, a way to map out how these stats, when you add them up, contribute overall to run scoring. But because it's backward looking, it doesn't seem necessarily to mean that it's predictive. Uh, I don't, that's where, that's where the whole WOBA thing has always lost me. Right. It's as, it's as predictive as any other, you know, components that, you know, is, is batting average predictive? Is, is, is on base or slugging predictive? Not 
really, you know, you want to go down to the skills. And even uh, as we as as we've talked about, we had a Facebook conversation about the piece with our friend uh, Gene McCaffrey and Peter Kreutzer. Some names that uh, the listeners might recognize as as guests on the show. We're talking about when you when you distill it all down to skills. You know what? Even skills aren't stable. So, uh, but the point being, yeah, it's right. You know, Wobe does a good job of 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 sort of big picture, but it's not predictive. Uh, it's a rate stat and when you're specifically down to the nuts and bolts of setting a, a DFS lineup, uh, if a, a player could have a, a high WOBA, but if he's not surrounded by players that are getting on base or knocking him in, the run producing it's just theoretical. It's not. It's not real. It's not practical. Because you know, if he's if he, he you know, it just means he gets a lot of singles, doubles, and triples. Doesn't mean he scores a lot. Doesn't mean he locks a lot. Of, knocks a lot of guys in. If he's surrounded in the, the lineup by lesser hitters so you know a, a high individual woba might not be indicative of a guy that you want on your dfs team that night or you can have a high woba hitting in the seventh or eighth spot in the order and you're just not going to get as many chances so again it's a, it's a nice you know to me it's a it's a way to first filter and then kind of dig more into the situation as far as uh as what you know as far as in, in the studies i've done actually as well are that you know, if if a major component of, of weighted on base is getting hits, and we know in a short-term sample that there's a lot of fluctuation with with batted balls in play as far as finding the holes and, and Texas leaguers and little bloops, then that luck is going to translate to to weighted on base average as well. So, who's to say that when you're looking at you know woba for DFS that it doesn't contain uh, a significant luck? You know, we always talk about, you know, this guy's a fool's gold because of his BABIP. Well, you could be fool's gold because of your Woba as well. You also pointed out in the uh, discussion that Woba and uh, some other uh, advanced stats are not corrected for park, which is a huge thing in daily gaming. Right. Now, yeah, because the the next step up from Woba is WRC+, plus, runs created plus. It's, uh, it's pretty much... Uh, a fan graphs stat and it's it's a, it's it's and it, what it is it's part corrected woba and then whereas woba is a rate stat you know point you know 310 is you know average woba uh wrc plus is normalized to 100 so it's it's like a park index and where 100 is neutral and then above and below so you know 105 wrc plus is you know a, a player that's producing more than the average number of runs and you know a 92 is a player producing less than the average now because of depending on how you calculate it and do you include pitchers or not the average is usually 98 or 97 or 99 but that you know again it depends upon you know keep everything in context but um if you you know if you're using woba in your analysis and for dfs and then and then later you use what park the player's in. Sometimes you're in, sort of double dipping as far as, you know, a Padre, they're, they're weighted on base. If it's the exact same as, you know, Colorado Rocky, it's actually more impressive from the Padre because it hasn't been corrected for Petco versus Coors. So if then you then either give it a boost or, or drop it again, because of the park the player's in that night, you could be sort of double influencing the, the park aspect of it so it all depends on how you apply it i mean it's not wrong or right as long as you are aware of it 
and you don't, you know, apply park again or, or fail to apply the park, you know, with, with, with one created plus, if you're using that, you then have to apply the park because it's been stripped out of it. So not that anything's wrong or right, it's just know in context and then use it properly, which is why I was saying use and misuse as opposed to bad or good stats to use. Well, it was fine in that instance if you know that it hasn't been stripped, the parks haven't been stripped out. Another critique of WOBA that came up from you and the other participants in the uh, in the round table were Derek Carty and Rachel Miller. Is that her name? Renee Miller. Yes, I'm sorry. And uh, the uh, a second critique or, or an additional critique of WOBA is that it doesn't really match up to the way most fantasy daily games are scored. And you pointed out, for instance, that there's no stolen base component, and stolen bases are two points apiece uh, at FanDuel, and I, I assume that there's the same on other games. And uh, there's a problem of scale that I think Derek Carty pointed out, which is that uh, the amount that a home run is better than a single is not the same in WOBA as it is in the games. I mean, I know at FanDuel, if you hit, get a home run, that's a six-point event. A single is a one-point event unless it drives in a run. Right now, again, it's one of those down and dirty, one size fits all numbers. When it, you know, it's kind of funny how these things work out. Uh, when we, when it, when you first start using it, when the DFS uh, industry first starts using it, you know, it's the smart thing to use because it's it's better than what has been used at the time. But of course, you know, we like to poke holes and be be smarter than the smarts. So now, you know, once it's become used, now we're going, you know, and now we're saying why it's not so good anymore. Uh, you know, a year ago, it was two years ago, it was what you, the smartest people, that's what they used. Now the smartest people are, are saying why it's not so good anymore. But that's just as things progress and as more numbers are available and as things go on, you know, that's, that's how you learn and that's how you get better. But you're, yeah, the point being, uh, it's hard, you know, all the different scoring systems, you can't come up with one number that crosses over, you know, in this, it goes the same with, with uh seasonal and you know put a dollar value what's the format you know is it four by four five by five is it head to head you know because you can't it's hard to come up with a single ranking or a single dollar value in seasonal because with all the different formats out there the different dfs have have different uh scoring and it just it's good but it's not perfect for each system and as we learn you know as you get more and more into the dfs and the way to beat it is to just subtly beat it at the edges. The fact that Wobe is not perfect is, uh, you know, you're not beating it at the edges. You know, you need it to be a little bit better than close. So, uh, you know, but to me, if it just points you in the right direction and then you spend the work, you know, that's what you get. But yeah, it's definitely for steals. It definitely doesn't incorporate the, uh, the stolen base component. And you know, there, that gets into the game theory of what you're looking for. If you're looking for a more consistent player, uh, versus a player that's likely to hit you two home runs and knock in eight runs. Uh, you know, a steal, a stolen base guy is a guy I like to use in the more safe cash games than, uh, you know, than, than, uh, perhaps it, it, he's less likely to have one of those huge nights. You know, how, how often does, does D Gordon steal four bases? It might happen, but, you know, you're more likely to get two homers from Todd Frazier or something like that. But, you know, it does as an initial filter misses out on some players with stolen base components. 
One other subject that came up that interested me was the idea of platoon splits. And the critique there from all of you was that uh, people are not quite understanding how splits work and the and the um, value of the platoon split between player A and player B because there's a lot of stuff going on about scale. Yeah, now this, yeah, this is one of those factors that is, you know, we all watch, we played. It's just, it's counterintuitive to how we might think. And, you know, jumping to the end, and the, the fascinating part to me is that according to the numbers, a hitter doesn't own his his splits. Uh, another, you know, they're not, you know, there's, there's still some variance or fluctuation or uh, you still need to regress his splits until he's played 10 years in the major leagues, which is huge. You know, that's a lot of players don't play 10 years in the major leagues. So, you know, even a guy like a, like a Miguel Cabrera uh, for, you know, for eight or nine years into his career, you couldn't say he owned his splits uh, until that 10th year. Now, every year that you play, you, you get closer to owning it you need a certain amount of plate appearances and the closest you are to that the more real your your actual splits are there's a couple different ways to regress to figure out what to expect and you know if, if the splits are much much different than what the global splits what the major league does it, it, it gets pulled down towards it but you still might express the player may show a, a split one way or another it's just the full extent of which you can't consider to be real but some of it you can and the longer into his career the more of it you can uh so it's not as if the splits don't exist but you know a player like miguel cabrera isn't so much what we're worried about it's more of the guy that that comes up this year and is showing an extreme split or has had a year or two in the league and for whatever reason this year in the first couple months of the season is showing a split much much different and people will you know if he's a lefty suddenly hitting lefties really well uh that sort of thing you know, oh well you know anthony rizzo can now hit lefties it's a little early to make that blanket statement you know you know next year you know we're gonna as much as i like anthony rizzo gonna have to regress what he's done against lefties this year pretty strongly to the uh, to the league mean and that's going to pull his expectations down as much as i like anthony rizzo this year i'm probably going to be not liking him as much next year because he's just doing so well against lefties and can't say it's real yet um but in general there's just far too many people looking at short sample splits and playing a reverse split guy in other you know reverse split is different than what appears to be the the norm uh putting him in their dfls lineup because he has a reverse split when i started looking at uh, platoon splits in particular when I was, was dabbling in, in the daily game I, I made a spreadsheet and I didn't all I didn't take players only looking at left versus right and right versus left I just amassed a, a database that said what is this what is every player's average or uh, performance not just batting average but a wider range of performance against right-handed pitching and I don't care if he's right-handed or left-handed I just want to know how can he can he hit right-handed pitching and I, my, my basis for doing that, and I've since abandoned it, but at the time I thought if I can identify right-handed hitters who are pretty good against right-handed pitching, 
then I'm going to play those guys in tournament play because I'm going to assume that a lot of guys won't play him just because the platoon is against him, even though he actually hits those guys pretty well. And Derek Carty in the uh, discussion mentioned, you know, Mike Trout hits left-handers better than he hits right-handers, but he hits right-handers really well too. And the question isn't so much the platoon split on a grand scale, it's, you know, good hitters hit both sides better than bad hitters. Right. The very last point I made in that, the very last paragraph I made in that piece, you know, touches on that very subject in, in a couple of different ways. I think a lot of people that make line, and I'm guilty of this too, you just don't have a lot of time sometimes to break out that spreadsheet and to really dig into it. You throw, put that lineup in. So you just kind of go over the, you know, the posted lineups and look left versus right, look for players and just put a lineup in without doing too much homework. And I think what happens there is we'll just jump a, a lefty-righty or a righty-lefty split guy over a same-headedness guy just because, without really thinking that the guy's basic skills with the same-headedness is probably better than the than the platoon split. So sometimes we, we, we make that jump without actually thinking about it. And the other uh, aspect is that, you know, how many how many hitters face the starting pitcher five times in a game? And if you are, that means because that that means that starting pitcher is is pitching really well, and you're not getting any hits off of him. So in other words, you know relievers come in, so you you may sit a guy because you know the starting pitcher is right on you know maybe a lefty on a left guy, but if that guy if that pitcher's only in there for two maybe three times through the order, you're still going to get a couple cracks at a, at a weaker left-hander, uh, sort of thing like that, and um, you know a, a, a right-handed hitter less likely a platoon right-handed hitter is probably going to come out of the game a ryan rayburn type when a, when a right-handed reliever comes in so there's all sorts of you know little intricacies that the further the more that you play the more you see happening and therefore have to react to it but you know to me when we do our projections of daily and it's always against the starting pitcher and you know I, i've got a bullpen component worked in but that's just a guess. Who's to see, you know? Who really knows what relievers are coming in? And if it's a close game, you get the good relievers. If it's a if it's a, a blowout game, you get the bad relievers. So you know, what can you actually estimate for those two more at bats that you're going to get uh, that aren't against the starter? When you you know you you try to distill a, a projection to a daily projection, it's really hard to do. But uh, I just think that you know the whole thing is the misuse of splits. You know, lefty-righty, righty-lefty is nice, but it's not necessarily the number one factor. It's still that pitcher, that pitcher versus that hitter that's still the uh, the overriding factor. Now, when I used to play Ron Chandler's game, Chandler Park, I used to look for a lefty-righty, righty-lefty because that's over a it was over a three or a four game span, and you really can't judge quality as well because you're facing three or four pitchers. I would look for my guys to put in for half a week that had more offhand in this matchup. The NFBC allows changes on Friday. So I will use lefty, righty, righty, lefty on marginal players. Look at the schedule that week, who he's facing. And if he's got four games, one guy, you know, if a lefty has four games against a righty and another guy is, you know, two and two, I might use the player with the, the better head in this in a half a week situation. Yeah, I think you can do it over a full week too but once you get to a full week's worth of moves so much stuff can happen that at that point you probably just want to go with the better player and 
in a lot of instances, as you said, you're talking about the player at the margins. You know, you you when you set up your daily fantasy list or your Ron Chandler game list, or even uh, when you're thinking about drafting a guy in a seasonal league, and you're looking at these kind of things. I mean, w- w- if you have Mike Trout in your lineup, you play him. That's just a, that's just a fact. If you have Paul Goldschmidt in your lineup, you play him. The decisions that you're making are down at the twenty two hundred dollar daily salary level type guys and the one dollar two dollar end gamers in seasonal play, and and you're trying to pick up marginal gains with marginal players. Well, yeah, but even in DFS, I mean, it could be you know Bryce Harper could be facing a a very good righty, and Mike Trout could be facing a an average righty, and Harper may have the platoon edge. But, you know, Harper might also be facing, I don't know, uh, you know, Zach Greinke that night, and Trout might be facing, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, Aaron Harang or something like that. That's an interleague, but, you know, maybe an interleague game. And you can't, so you, you can't just use the first filter that, well, I'm going to go with Harper because it's lefty-righty. Well, that's an extreme example, but, you know, that sort of idea filters down, you know, throughout the, you know, it does filter down into the, the $2,200 players as well. But there have been, you know, there, there are times where it matters up top as well. Uh, if I'm going to, if I'm, if I'm spending up on a player, I think especially because you're spending up on a player, sometimes you want every single thing to be going their way. And you might avoid, you know, playing Nolan Arenado against a, a, a lesser right-handed pitcher because he doesn't have the platoon split. But everything else is in his advantage. So I think, you know, I think that it's, you know, depending upon what, how your brain works and, and where you filter, I, even at the top, uh, you, you don't, not every single situation is going to be perfect. And again, to me, the most important one is the quality of that hitter versus the quality. I don't even care what park it's in. You know, I'll take a, 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 a good hitter against a lousy pitcher in, in what's it, in Jellystone Park the Yellowstone Park, whichever, uh, whichever analogy is funnier to the person than I will, even if it's in, you know, course, you know, I'm not going to take a crappy hitter against a good pitcher in Coors Field. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davo with Todd Zolo talking about which stats are overused or misused in daily fantasy. And let's turn the conversation to seasonal games. Are there similar stats that you think people overuse or misuse when they're making their decisions coming into draft and uh, and to a lesser extent during the season because then you start starting to talk about shorter runs and it starts to edge more towards what we've already talked about. But when people are coming into their uh, seasonal drafts or seasonal auctions, are they using stats incorrectly? I think the the two the two scenarios that I can think of, um, one of one of is is the the idea of a first half and a second half player, and I think you know you're going to get people that you know I'm going to draft so and so, and then I'm going to trade for 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 Adam LaRoche at, at midseason because he always is a great second half, and Mark Teixeira is a player that potentially. Uh, and not so potentially, but he's got the reputation, sorry, reputation as being a second half player. And players that people will actually look at that and who's a first half player, who's a second half player, and then they'll draft a first half player with the intention of trading him for a second half player. And at the end of the day, first, it's kind of just like with any of these other number stats, there probably is a guy that's truly a first half and truly a second half player. We just don't know it. We can't absolutely identify it via the numbers. It's just, it's, it's, it's more subjective. You know, we can all put our own narrative to why we think so-and-so is or isn't. And maybe we're right, maybe we're not. But we're not definitely right, not definitely wrong. 
And so to me, that that's one of the things is the old uh, assuming a guy's a first and a second half player. Uh, and that a little that goes into your initial expectation. If a, if a player had a strong finish to the season, I think we, we may put more weight to that when we for our expectations the following year. You know, he finally figured it out or, or this or that or the other thing. And we, we, we wait the second half a little bit more. You know, even, you know, the forecaster has first and second half splits. And I think there's some, there's some bias in there. And I, you know, I might be naive to the study that shows a good second half portends to a, a better year the following year. Anything I've looked at, I haven't found it myself, but maybe, maybe it does exist. And I'm naive to that, to that study. But I think too many people, uh, put too much credence into a strong September or a strong second half. I looked at it once years ago, and I didn't find anything either, with one s- sort of kind of partial exception, and that was young players. So a, a player who starts as a rookie, uh, struggles through the first half, gets his feet under him, and starts starts really performing much better in the second half, can portend to the second half being more realistic of their uh, skill level or ability level in the subsequent year than the first half, which you can s- more safely ignore. If it's a player who's been in the league for three or four years, however, has you know eight hundred or a thousand plate appearances or or you know five hundred innings or or whether you want to count that or batters faced. Um, if it's a young player, I I do like to look at those second half performers who really stepped it up because I think there is something to learning the game and getting more used to it at the highest level. Yeah, and I think any time you're looking at splits, uh, split season data, you, you can't focus on the outcomes. You need to focus on the skills because we've seen time and time again where a player, especially pitchers, where their root skills are the same, one half to the other, or however you want to parse the data, but yet the outcomes in 10 versus 12 starts or you know 15 versus 14, whatever it might be, you know, can be, you know, can be huge with left on base percentage or, or, or Babbitt or whatever. The outcomes can just not port, not be reflective of their skills to a certain, you know, hitters isn't quite as much, but it, it, it does, it does happen as well. So I think the way to look at it, and I think, you know, you can attach the narrative to young players and that that's the age with their, when they first come up, they're more likely you know, to struggle and you can even see it in the minors. I don't know if you did it, but what I would be doing in that case is to look at the player's minor league career if he was one of those players that always seemed to have trouble when he was was promoted to the next level, I would just say that the same thing's happening in the majors. And if he seemed to figure it out, I would say, well, he's going to figure it out in the majors too. There, there are a, you know a lot of players that do that. You, you struggle the first time up, then you get new, used to the new level. It's rare that you're able to just you know get promoted. You know, even even in a regular at any job that you have. There's some getting used to the new responsibilities and new pressures and and new duties and and new you know everything. I think it you know it's not just baseball, uh, so that would I could easily see where that would happen. But you know it's just that I can't. We're a little bit early, but someone's going to have a great six weeks to the season, and they're going to be they're going to be atop a lot of uh, draft lists. I mean, I for me, I, the guy I can think of last year was Shane Green. I was all into Shane Green because uh, of the the way he finished the season. And a lot of it was skills, and he just didn't transfer the skills over this year. But, you know, he was a guy that I don't want to say was fooled into. But uh, based upon how he finished the season, I definitely had raised expectations for him coming into this year. 
And I think that's reasonable. Uh, I, I don't see that that's a mistake or something that you ought not to do. I, I, I do believe that with young players, it's something to look at. You do, of course, want to be very aware that it's a skills game and that that's what you want to be looking at. First half to second half is improvement in strikeout rate, improvement in walk rate for either a pitcher or a hitter, those kind of things. And be very aware of of luck-based swings because if you're talking about half a season, you're also talking about a situation where luck can play an even larger role than it does over a full season. You have to be very cognizant of that. And moving on, uh, uh, Todd, you're up there in, in the Boston area. I uh, presume you're a Red Sox fan. Uh, what did you make of them moving uh, or deciding to move Hanley Ramirez to first base? That's They must read my Twitter feed because I've been tweeting about that. Um, I'd like the move. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if it'll work out, uh, but just looking in, in it, for me, it's as much of a reminder of how good Jackie, forget how he's hitting, but it was a reminder of how good Jackie Bradley is with the glove than it is anything else. And that if you, uh, if you tailor your team properly, if you're strong up the middle, with with a, a good hitting catcher and a good hitting shortstop and a good hitting second baseman like the Red Sox seem to be doing, then you could afford to have uh, a lesser bat in the outfield. I mean, what Jackie Bradley's junior is doing is great, and if he has figured something out, it's even better. But he's obviously not going to continue hitting like he's hitting. And I just I think an outfield with him, Mookie Betts, and Rusny Castillo could be pretty darn good defensively. And then you know that what do you now what do you do with Hanley? Well, you know, they got they got rid of Mike Napoli. Uh, then the, obviously the next place to put him is first base, and he couldn't play left very well. I was at a, a seminar in Boston last weekend where that was one of the main topics of discussion was how the Red Sox brass went on the leap of faith that history of shortstops, of athletic shortstops having success in the outfield was in their favor. It just didn't work out this time. Uh, so the next place to put him, because Ortiz is still dh in his first base, and that's what I, you know, my, my joke tweet was, I hope that when he's back from this latest injury that the Red Sox have a welcome back present and it's a first baseman's mitt. And sure enough, that's what it was. So we'll, uh, we'll have to see. I can even see something like, and I know Ortiz is hitting lefties now, but, you know, who knows if he'll hit him. He's going to be a year older. A platoon situation where Hanley... Takes the bats versus southpaws as a DH, and maybe Alan Craig, who's still with the organization, makes the team next year, and he plays first base when Hanley DHs, something like that. They also have Travis Shaw. I think they're pretty high on him as a uh, as a first base prospect, which could cause a little bit of. Uh, crowding at the position shall we say or maybe delay him getting to the big leagues now here's a question so far for next year Hanley Ramirez is going to be an outfield only unless he starts picking up some games pretty quickly what the the news alert that I saw from him said probably starting next year this is a this is a play for next year is there any chance he gets in 20 games this year at first base a chance I suppose I I I think that I think Shaw hitting so well has has potentially put a, a bit of a uh, a damper on that. I I don't know for sure. Um, I think you, st- you that means that someone isn't going to get a look. That means that 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 Rosny Castillo has to sit down or 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 someone when when Hanley comes back and plays left field. I don't know. I guess it wouldn't shock me. On the other hand, I I think from a fantasy perspective, I'm not all that 
concerned or I don't think it's going to change my my way of thinking if he's outfield or if he's first base. Now, if it, you know, if the word was he's going to convert back to shortstop, that might be a slightly different story, although I'm less scarcity-driven than I think anybody else that I know of. Uh, I think that, to me, it's more of the multiple position is more important than the actual positions. But, I, I'm, you know, to me, with Hanley, it's still how healthy do I think he's going to be, and now it's that narrative. Is he is he going to stay healthy at first base? He's He hadn't stayed healthy in left field. I mean, one of them was because he smashed in a wall and hurt his shoulder. Uh, you know, is he going to be able to stay healthy playing first base? People seem to forget that you're all, you know, it might not be far. It might not be, you know, that strenuous. But when you play first base, you're moving every single play, whether it's covering the bag or backing up a base. You know, you are you are moving and doing something every single play. So it's not like he's just going to be stationary when the ball's hit in another direction. Uh, so I think that I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that you don't get, you know, that you don't stay healthy, you know, playing first. You know, knowing knowing Hanley Ramirez, he'll he'll be, you know, have a collision with a base runner and get hurt that way too, just the way that injuries seem to find him. But I think athletically, he should be able to make the transition. Uh, his bat's been inconsistent, but you know they're committed to paying him. Uh, so I just I thought for the overall construction of of the team again because I just to me Jackie Bradley Jr. is just so fun to watch in the outfield. I think I, I don't think I've seen a more natural outfielder that just knows where the ball's going to land every time and just runs to that spot. When, you know, one of those guys that you can just just look so natural out there. Um, so I'm willing to sacrifice any offense from him. Uh, and the way to do it is to get Hanley at first. Of course, uh, first baseman, when they're chasing foul balls over towards the stands, put themselves in harm's way a little bit more than usually you expect to see in the outfield. There are some collisions with walls, as Hanley Ramirez proved, but it was a side wall. It wasn't the, uh, wasn't the outfield wall that he ran into. I was watching that particular game. Now, uh, and another issue is, and, and tell me what you think of this, but it's a new position, and people think because it's way over on the far end of the defensive spectrum that's been developed with kind of catcher at one end and first base at the other as far as difficulty, that first base at the major league level is easy, and it's not. You know, there's a lot going on. As you said, you're in the play on every ground ball and most fly balls because there's things that you have to do to, to do cutoffs and all of those kind of things. And he doesn't know how to do any of them. And I'm wondering what you think of the possibility that in learning how to do this, it's going to subtract in some way from his batting because his fielding is now top of mind or is a problem for the team and for him. Yeah, I'm not sure. You'd like to think that since he is such a veteran, that it wouldn't get into his head like that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the thing that we that we sometimes forget, and you know, I didn't. I it's been so many years since I played. Um, I happened to play both first and third back in the day, and the just the angle off the bat, especially the, you're, you're he's he's on the other side of the diamond, and just the the, the angle of the ball off the bat is completely different, and it, it matters in the outfield too. The ball slicing and and coming into you. Uh, he's not having to worry about going to right field, but the point being, you know, it, it's it's a huge transition just by the, the 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 ball off the bat. Not to mention things like you know the throw. He the three six three throw is something that's just completely different than the throws he's had to make from short or third or or even in from the outfield. So yeah, there it's definitely there's definitely some you know is it is it 
I mean, is this, you know, it's, it's possible to do. I'm not, you know, none of these things are impossible. And uh, there is a reason why first base is rated to be easier. It's, it's probably easier to pick up these new skills than it is to learn how to, you know, make the throw from second on a double play, etc. But it is different. Uh, and who knows? I mean, once you start talking about Henry Mirrors and, and inside his head, who knows what's inside there? So, you know, I, I, I don't know. But, um, as a fantasy player, uh, I, I, I can, I, you know, I can hear, I can hear our buddy Glenn Colton saying he's not going anywhere near Hanley Ramirez next year when he changes positions just because it goes against the mantra of, of their drafting. And there's a reason why Glenn and his partner Rick have won so many leagues. It makes some sense. So I, you know, it's one of those things where the numbers on my page are going to put him at a certain level, but am I going to be willing to draft that level because of these other factors? You know what? The tie is going to go to, you're right, these things may affect his performance. Why take the chance? On the other hand, you could say the glass is half full. It's a buying opportunity because nobody wants to do it. Maybe you get a, you know, $15, $20 Hanley Ramirez for 10 bucks, and you laugh all the way to the bank. Uh, being in Boston there, Todd, uh, the other story out of Red Sox Nation that caught my eye because I'm a big fan of Don Orsillo and the team of very surprisingly to me, has decided to cut ties with Don Orsillo, their play-by-play man on Nezen. And and were you as surprised as I was? And what are they talking about in Boston regarding the Don Orsillo situation? Yeah, I was surprised. I I, I mean, I'm a, yes, I'm a Red Sox fan, but due to the nature of my job, I, you know, I have to follow all the teams, and sometimes I don't even have the volume on anymore. Uh, so trying to if if there's a, a game I need to watch a player for. For analytical reasons, whatever, I may have the volume on a different game. But I was very, very surprised. Um, he's, I can't believe it. It's, it's actually been 15 years he's been with, you know, to me, I still remember hearing Orsillo when he first started saying, damn, that guy sounds just like Sean McDonough. Cause they, they, he sounded a lot like McDonough, who he happened to replace, uh, in, in 2001. It's, it's weird. It's been a whole 15 years. I'm actually sort of surprised that. Orsillo was as highly thought of that he was because he's, he's, he's non-conventional. He'll, in the middle of a game, he and his partner, Jerry Ramey, will just get off on a tangent and, and Orsillo will just start giggling, you know, and, and, and where, you know, the way people are now want to just sort of, you know, in, insult everybody on the internet. I just kind of thought that that, you know, everybody can hear games across the country that, yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to hear a grown man giggling during a game. Orsillo's terrible, but apparently, People got it, and that was just part of it, part of his allure, part of his charm. And it kind of surprised me that, uh, you know, across not so much in Boston, but across the country, people like yourself enjoyed that part of the game and didn't just want a robot giving numbers and, 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 you know, the same old, same old sort of thing. So I, I kind of, I think more surprising than anything wasn't so much the reaction in Boston. But I, I, it's a similar reaction across the country now, and you, we can, you know, because you can get every game on, on the the network or, or the computer. You know, people will watch out of town games a lot. So that that kind of surprised me a little bit. On the other hand, I mean, TBS isn't gonna hire a guy to do the playoffs if he's not good, and he's been doing games for TBS during the playoffs for the past several years. So he must be respected on that way as well. You know, as far as personally goes. I was entertained, you know, I, I'm not going to say I know everything about baseball, but I know enough that I don't need the announcer every night to teach me something new. I love listening to Ron Darling because he is going to teach me something I don't know. 
but I watch a lot of games and occasionally it's nice just to watch a game and, and just enjoy the entertainment because the announcers are adding to that in their own special way and that's what Orsillo did for me was uh, added some entertainment to a baseball game you know that I, wa- that I wasn't getting with other announcers. Well, I'm sure that Don Orsillo will land on his feet. He'll have a job somewhere. He's too good at the job not to. As you mentioned, he's done playoff broadcasting for uh, TBS and uh, done a, a very good job, and they have him back year after year. So something he's got a reputation in that industry, I think, that will serve him well. Uh, the sad part of the story for me was that Don Orsillo apparently got on the wrong side of some suit at uh, NES and the New England Sports Network, some vice president of programming somewhere who instituted a policy that all the broadcasters in the Nezen uh, sports broadcasting organization had to take mid-year breaks and Orsillo didn't like doing that and really you get six months off a year can you not manage <laughs> you know you, I mean if you're a baseball broadcaster you got plenty of time off so it, it seemed like a dumb policy and apparently Orsillo made his uh, opposition to it known which got on the wrong side of this suit and and as a result uh, the fans end up doing without Don Orsillo on Boston Red Sox broadcast which just too bad. Uh, Dave O'Brien, he's a, uh, I listened to him on the radio on uh, on Sirius XM. He seems to do a good job. Yeah, he, he's, he's, a, he's been doing the radio for the Red Sox off and on because he also has some national gigs, so he's sort of a regular but not every single guy. Oh, he's going to be fine, you know, and hey, you know, when, when, when Sean McDonough left, we were, there was an outcry, and you know, who's this Arcello guy? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think people are complaining about Dave O'Brien as much as they are about the treatment. I think, you know, the right about that whole, I, I don't like, you know, I don't comment on things I really don't know the whole story, and I don't think anybody knows the whole story here, but that is what's going, that, that is what's being talked about, is, uh, you know, who, you know giving, forcing a two-week vacation upon somebody in the middle of a season where, you know, like you said, and part of it, too, was, uh, and this is kind of weird in that, you know, you you, they, you now owe us two weeks or solo, so he had a, he had a like, work for two weeks after the season was over. I don't think it was so much that he had to work, you know, you know, wasn't he was going off and, and wouldn't have another, you know, 20 weeks to do whatever, but it was just, it was just a weird, a weird scenario. You know, the, the guy that maybe went to one too many, you know, theoretical classes as, as far as how to manage and, and didn't really, you know, think about it. You know, it is weird. I mean, you know, I, I agree you you better take a vacation. You know, if you work fifty two weeks a year, you know you better take some vacation. I went through a stage when I was in biotech where I didn't, and it it did hurt my work. Um, so I understand about that theory. I just don't know if it's necessary in the middle of a baseball season when, like you said, you've got well the spring training, but you have three or four months of 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 not doing a whole lot other than you know making sure you don't hurt your vocal cords. <laughs> You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with one of our favorite announcers, uh, Todd Zola. And, and Todd, uh, at FantasyAlarm.com, just uh, within the last little while, you've put up a new uh, post uh guys you're looking at for next year. And uh, give us a, a sneak preview of uh, maybe one pitcher, one hitter. Yeah, well, the, there weren't any pitchers. Um, but I, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of weird. We, I, was th- I was thinking about that piece as we were talking about some of the other um, the stats, et cetera, and how you know Hanley and 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 how it's different than his how my projection is going to be different than how I might draft him because that was kind of the theme to this piece is within with each with each within each of all these players 
you know, the numbers of the numbers, but there's some narrative why I think I'm going to like the player more than 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 everybody else. And and we started out uh, with uh, we started with Randall Grichik of 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 the Cardinals, who is hurt now, is due back in the in, in mid September. Uh, so far this year, I mean, he's, his numbers are fantastic, but the you know the analysts going to say how much he's striking out, and they're going to point towards his his really high BABIP correctly. You know that he is a guy that you know is outperforming his his skills at this point. But as we often do in this case, we ignore the possibility that the player improves his skills. And for me, you know, I'm, I, if I allow for that, there's a sort of a a soft spot in between where the person who wants to show their right because they know Bapic regresses and contact is is bad, you know, they're going to talk down on the player, and the possibility that his skills improve, there's that intermediate buffer where I can draft that player and sort of built in the risk involved, and if he if if he does get better skills, you know, get a little bit of return on my investment. So I look at a guy, you know, 23 years old, he's got speed. Uh, a lot of triples, pretty good stolen base marks. So he's got some skills. So I look at a guy that has got the potential to have some a skillsy guy that can, uh, if he can improve the contact some. And you know the Babbitt's going to regress. I, I know that, uh, but there, I think I think he may fall at a higher place than someone else may think he's going to fall. So that was one example. You know, then and the numbers are going to show a certain landing spot, but I'm going to have a built-in but he could do better than that if his skills get better sort of thing in the back of my mind. So that was one. And Delano DeShields is another. I think we talked about him a little bit in the past and that um, we didn't talk about this. And then the fact that since I started, you know, running player valuations, the, the, the party line is all overvalue steals. Yeah, maybe I do, or maybe I value them correctly. And the market has just moved to not value them as much more for game theory reasons. But a guy like DeShields, I'm going to look at the steals, and I'm not going to see a one-trick pony. I'm going to see my fourth outfielder in a mixed league, whereas somebody else doesn't want to draft a one-trick pony. I'm going to have a bunch of power in my first three outfielders, and I'm going to need to balance it out. And I'm probably going to have the shields uh, a peg or two higher on my draft list than than somebody else that you know refuses to draft a guy that just gets steals. So looking for those little edges over and above the numbers, those are a couple players I think I had. Uh, Jacob uh, JT Real Muto on there, and uh, the deal there was uh, Park. Everybody looks at Marlins Stadium and figures it's a huge pitchers park, and it really isn't. And I I just have a feeling, you know, he's a guy that he's a catcher that can run. He doesn't have power, so that I don't I don't care about the fact that that it crushes power, but still good for for offense. He to me he's built for that park, a gap hitter with speed, even you know from a catcher. Uh, I just. I think that my run in RBI projection for Riamuto will be a little bit more generous than somebody else's, and that could be enough to uh, to make him my second catcher in mix, whereas someone else is looking elsewhere. Something about Delino DeShields that I like is uh, his on-base percentage after a slow start in very few plate appearances in April, 406 in May, uh, 315 in a slow June, then 393, 314. So he's bouncing around, but he's settling in somewhere around the 340 mark, 350. And I think that's one of those skills where there's room to grow. He draws a lot of walks, for one thing, and as he gets better and learns how to use his speed, I think he could be a really good on-base percentage guy as well if your league plays that way. And I don't believe that his batting average is going to hurt you either. He's bounced around the 300 mark in those good months 
I don't know. I like Delano DeShields a lot, too. Uh, and uh, Todd, thanks very much for doing this again. It's always so much fun to talk with you, and we'll catch up with you again one more time next week. All right. Well, we'll have to make it extra special then, and uh, looking forward to it already. Todd Zola works for ESPN's Fantasy Baseball, including regular daily fantasy recommendations. He also writes at FantasyAlarm.com and MastersBall.com. Next up, our commentaries. We have the Minor League Minute, playing time, frequent flyers, pitcher matchups, and master notes, all coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Ventura is waiting. McGlinchey staring in, has his sign. A 2-1 pitch. The drive in the air to deep right field. That ball headed toward the wall. That ball is out of here. Out of here. A game-winning grand slam home run off the bat of Robin Ventura. Ventura with a grand slam. They're mobbing him before he can get to second base. The Mets have won the ball game. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Pirates right-handed pitcher Tyler Glasnow is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Pittsburgh Pirates have been red-hot since the All-Star break, going 20-10 and 10 since July 20th. Many of their core players have worked their way up through the Pirates' farm system, and there was plenty of more talent on the way, including Jamison Tyone, who's out for the year with an injury, Austin Meadows, Alan Hansen, and 2011 fifth-rounder Tyler Glasnow. At 6'8", 225 pounds, Glasnow has a long, lean, athletic frame, which he uses very well to get downhill tilt on his plus upper 90s heater. He also mixes in a plus but inconsistent curve and a much-improved changeup. Throughout his career, Glasnow has been able to miss bats at an amazing rate. Not only does he own a career strikeout per 9 rate of 11.9, but he also boasts a career batting average against of just 171. Given his size and max effort delivery, it isn't surprising that Glasnow has an occasional bout of wildness, and to date he's walked over 4 batters per 9. But his stuff is so good it hasn't been an issue yet. On the year, Glasnow is 6-4 with a 2.07 ERA with 36 walks and 122 strikeouts and a 198 batting average against in 95 innings between double and triple A. While it's unlikely that the Pirates will give the 22-year-old Glasnow any meaningful innings down the stretch, an injury could change that and Glasnow is a decent speculative play in deep NL-only formats. Long term, Tyler Glasnow has the potential to be a true staff ace for years to come and is definitely a player to target. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes ongoing daily call-ups of prospects like Colorado right-hander Jairo Diaz, Washington shortstop Ray Turner, Philadelphia outfielder Aaron Altier, and many more. And there's our watch list report, a quick hit look at minor leaguers on the verge of call-up because of changes on the big league roster, their own performance, or both. Many players in the watch list aren't top-level prospects, but they could provide short-term fantasy value in the right situation. In the latest edition, it's part one of the September Collops Review, looking at Atlanta outfielder Malik Smith, Baltimore Southpaw starter Chris Jones, and many more. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. 
Now it's time for our playing time comment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more or less playing time. In this week's edition, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at Malik Smith and his potential stolen base impact down the stretch. September call-up season is upon us, and while many minor league prospects only get a small cup of coffee at the major league level with little chance for a big impact, there are always a few who can make those small differences for your team down the stretch. One such prospect this year might be Malik Smith, soon to be with the Atlanta Braves. Smith was brought over to Atlanta from San Diego in the Justin Upton trade this spring, and he was rated the team's number 8 prospect by BaseballHQ.com entering this season. His status has certainly jumped since then, though. Smith was featured twice on BaseballHQ.com this week in a Playing Time Tomorrow piece by Greg Pyron and later in Alec Dopp's Minor League Watchlist column. Smith has been tearing through AA and AAA this season in Atlanta's system. He's getting on base at a 371 clip, and he already has 50 steals. His August numbers at AAA have been fantastic as well, with 11 steals and over a 450 slugging in 19 games. The Braves don't have much to lose the rest of the way. There's still a chance they could deal current outfielder Cameron Mabin, but there's probably an opening in their outfield for Malik Smith. Even as a pinch runner in deep leagues, Smith might have the goods to be productive anyway, especially if your team is tightly bunched up in the steals category. Adding Smith in deep leagues could get you those extra few points depending on where your stolen base situation is. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every Tuesday. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are Logan Verrett, Brandon Geyer, and Rowena Elias. And here to tell you more, BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Sometimes September can create some unique opportunities. This week's edition of Frequent Flyers will look at three players capitalizing on unique opportunities beginning in Colorado. Maybe it was only supposed to be a spot start to rest Matt Harvey, but former third-round draft pick Logan Verrett has made the most of his opportunity at Coors Field last Sunday. The 25-year-old Verrett struck out eight in eight innings of work, yielding only a home run to Carlos Gonzalez in the fourth inning before retiring 14 of his last 16 batters. After the game, the Mets optioned Dario Alvarez to AAA rather than Verrett. Sure, Verrett's ERA may have improved by almost 80 points at AAA between last year and this year, but it's important to remember that Logan Verrett, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Even though he had a great outing at Coors Field, one of the toughest ballparks for pitchers, Verrett has been passed over by at least three teams this year, including Baltimore and Texas. Not exactly a vote of confidence, but Logan Verrett could be worth a flyer, especially in Dynasty Leagues. Our second frequent flyer takes us to Tampa Bay, where 29-year-old right fielder Brandon Geyer is batting 395 through 18 games in August and 328 games since the All-Star break. Although Geyer was initially part of a platoon, the injury to Steven Sousa Jr. and the trade of David DeJesus has provided Geyer with an opportunity for significantly more playing time. He's responded with a base performance value of 64 over the past 31 days, well above the benchmark of 50 for baseball's best hitters, according to BaseballHQ.com. 
However, Geyer's full-season numbers paint a slightly different picture, suggesting that his surge over the past month may be short-lived. Geyer's expected batting average of .267 closely mirrors his current .270 average for the season. His ground ball to fly ball ratio, according to BaseballHQ.com, has not changed much between last year and this year. His contact rate is still hovering around 80%, or roughly 5 percentage points above what Baseball HQ refers to as the hackers of society. Still, Geyer has almost doubled his stolen base and home run production between last year and this year, making him worth a flyer in daily and AL-only leagues. Finally, our last frequent flyer takes us to Seattle, where left-handed Rowenis Elias may soon be returning to the Mariners' starting rotation. The Mariners' 543 team earned run average since the All-Star break is the worst in the American League, precipitating a change. With a 4-6 record and a 4.27 ERA through the 13 starts in 2015, Elias is likely to be overlooked in most leagues, especially when you consider that Elias hasn't started for the Mariners since July 2nd and has posted a 7.34 ERA through 12 starts at Tacoma. However, his underlying skills, as reported by BaseballHQ.com, suggests Elias might not be as bad as his surface stats show. His DOM of 7.4, his command ratio of 2.6, his control rate of 2.9, all suggest that Elias could be a solid contributor for the stretch run. Elias' 280 batting average on balls in play is decent, and his swinging strike rate of 10% is slightly higher than the 9.5% benchmark set by BaseballHQ.com to identify difference makers. And if you want to identify some difference makers for September, consider adding Logan Verrett, Brandon Geyer, and Rowanis Elias, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our pitcher matchup report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup based on opponent, park, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. We recommend pitchers with matchup ratings of plus 2 or higher while we suggest you avoid pitchers whose matchup ratings are below zero. Matchup ratings between zero and two are dealer's choice. You assess them based on your own risk tolerance and your league or game context. Now looking at this weekend's matchups, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. It's the final weekend of August and beginning in September, nearly every game on the schedule is an interdivision double whammy, which means the contending clubs can take some roller coaster rides in the standings. So let's use the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool to look at some weekend pairings that could start those roller coasters going. Two American League teams with wildcard aspirations face off as the Baltimore Orioles head into Texas to meet the Rangers. And two National League teams enter a do-or-die month together as the Chicago Cubs visit the Los Angeles Dodgers. Texas sends out two lefties with identical matchup ratings of just 038. But Baltimore can only counter with two righties, both saddled with negative numbers. It's the Cubbies who have the best one-two punch this weekend, a lefty-righty combination of two pitchers in the recommended range. The Dodgers don't have Grenke and Kershaw lined up, so their right-left combination doesn't even add up to a matchup rating of one when taken together. Baltimore has fallen below 500 and is now two and a half games out of the wild card after losing eight of its past ten. The Orioles score nearly half a run more than they allow per game. Plus, they're going to face a pair of lefties, and against lefties, 
they have a respectable record of 17 and 13. But Texas is three games over 500, and against teams at or above 500, Baltimore is a woeful 19 and 41. On the road, the O's are 13 games under 500. Texas is only one of 12 teams with a losing record at home, and against teams below 500 like Baltimore, the Rangers are 31 and 34. But they face two righties, and against right-handers, they are five games over 500. What's more, Texas has just moved into a half-game lead for the second wildcard spot by winning seven of its past 10, 13 of its past 20, and 19 of its past 30 games. So let's give the edge to Texas as far as the two teams go. And though you might barely consider the Rangers starters even as risk-reward choices, their pair of lefties are both better bets than Baltimore's pair of righties. On Saturday, it's Martin Perez at his matchup rating of 038 for Texas against Baltimore's Ubaldo Jimenez and his matchup rating of minus 051. Perez returned from Tommy John surgery in 14 months and after three shaky starts in July, he has four so-so starts in August, averaging a PQS score of three this month. But his underlying base performance indicators give hope that he's finding his way back. For August, his base performance value is 98. His expected earned run average is 330. His ground ball percentage is 66, and his whip is 111. Jimenez is still an enigma. On the road, he's racked up five of his six PQS disaster zeros. In his past 10 starts, he's given up four or more earned runs five times and put up an average PQS score of 2-2. After an April through June average monthly BPV of 115 in July and August, he's fallen to 65. Outside of an unlucky strand rate of 57% this month, there's nothing to recommend Jimenez. On Sunday, it's Derek Holland and his matchup rating of 038 for the Rangers against Miguel Gonzalez and his matchup rating of minus 033 for the O's. Like Martinez, Holland has recently returned from the operating room after a knee surgery cost him five months of the 2014 season and a shoulder procedure sidelined him for four months this season. He's only had 12 innings pitched in two starts since returning, and one of those starts was against Toronto, which can skew anyone's stats. There's just too little to go on yet for Holland. Gonzalez has a long track record of mediocrity that is less difficult to decipher. In 24 outings this year, he has 8 PQS disaster starts and 7 PQS dominant starts. Since his first three starts of the season, Gonzalez has gone more than two starts in a row without a disaster once. His average PQS score on the road is 225, and he is headed into a second half swoon with a control rate of 3-2, a whip of 159, and an expected ERA of 455. There's no reason to go with Gonzalez unless, of course, like Baltimore, you're stuck with him in your rotation. Now let's look at the National League set of games for the Cubs and the Dodgers in LA. Chicago appears to be comfortably ensconced in the second wildcard slot with a better record than Los Angeles which will likely lose its postseason berth if the arch-rival Giants overcome the Dodgers' two-and-a-half game lead. The Cubs are on fire, winning 14 of their past 20 and 21 of their past 30 games. They have the second-best road record in the majors at 34-27 and and the third-best record against teams over 500 at 32-23. and And that's the Dodgers' biggest weakness. Against teams over 500, they are only 18-31. and but they are an intimidating 42 and 20 at home. It's just that they're only around 500 in their past 10, 20, and 30 games. So let's give the Cubs a slight edge at the team level. 
And Chicago has two knockout punches ready for L.A. in this weekend's matchups. On Saturday, lefty John Lester has a matchup rating of 216 against Matt Latos and his matchup rating of 056. Two outings ago, Lester was stuck with his second PQS Disaster Zero versus Detroit this year. And the Dodgers themselves hung another one on him the last time he faced them in Chicago on June 9. But between those two efforts, Lester ran off PQS dominant starts in seven of eight tries, including six consecutive PQS fives. For the year, Lester has a base performance value of 130, a dominance rate of 9-1, a control rate of 2-3, a whip of 120, and an expected ERA of 318. And with the exception of a 121 whip, he's been improving on all of those numbers over the past 31 days. Latos has not paid any dividends for the Dodgers in his three starts since they acquired him. In just 15 innings for L.A., he's allowed 11 earned runs, struck out eight, and put up two PQS zeros. Overall, Latos has a base performance value of 93, and he did have a streak of four PQS 5 scores just prior to coming over from Miami. So that makes him a risk-reward play. On Sunday, Jake Arietta of the Cubs has the highest matchup rating among those we've covered this weekend at 235. Overall, his base performance value is 138. His dominance rate is over 9 and his whip is under 1. His expected ERA has improved to 266 in the second half, and his PQS log shows 81% PQS dominance scores and no PQS disasters, with 8 PQS dominant starts in a row and 11 in his past 12 outings. He's simply a must-start, and he's going up against the erratic Alex Wood and his matchup rating of 031. Wood has had 5 starts for the Dodgers since coming over from Atlanta in the same 3-team trade that netted Latos. Wood has averaged a PQS score of 3 for LA, and in 148 innings pitched overall, he has 111 strikeouts and 50 walks, a whip of 141, an expected ERA of 408, and a base performance value of 64. For the past 31 days, his base performance value of 48 is not too encouraging, so he's a long shot at best. This weekend, you can let the big dogs bark with John Lester and Jake Arrieta. But keep Ubaldo Jimenez, Derek Holland, Miguel Gonzalez, and Alex Wood in the doghouse. And if you need a risk-reward play, consider giving Martin Perez and Matt Latos short leashes. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. And now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. And with a look at 10 reasons not to miss first pitch Arizona, here's BaseballHQ.com co-general manager Ray Murphy. First pitch Arizona is three days packed with seminars, scouting, and socializing at baseball's premier off-season league. You can pick the brains of the nation's top baseball analysts, participate in fun and challenging workshops and contests, gain an unbeatable edge in your league by scouting 2016's future stars from your own front row seat. Here are our top 10 reasons to attend First Pitch Arizona. This year's dates are November 5th through 8th in Phoenix, Arizona. Number 10, Prospects. This year's rosters are due to be announced next week. History suggests it will be another bumper crop. Last year's AFL rosters featured the likes of Francisco Lindor, Byron Buxton, Corey Seager, Hunter Renfro, Raul Mondesi, Aaron Judge, Dalton Pompey, Mark Appel, Archie Bradley, Roberto Asuna, Robbie Ray, Vincent Velasquez, just to name a handful. 
Number nine, an amazing speaker roster. Quick, who are your favorite baseball analysts? Chances are we have a couple of them on our panels. Steve Gardner, Joe Sheehan, Eric Carabell, Tristan Cockroft, Eno Saris, Paul Sporer, Jason Collette, Jeff Erickson. These are just a few of the names on our speaker roster for this year. Number eight, expertise in your favorite game format. If you play score sheet baseball, you'll be able to share insights with the game's founder, Jeff Barton. If you're an NFBC player, Greg Ambrosius would love to have a drink with you. There will assuredly be plenty of discussion of daily fantasy topics as well. Number seven, the XFL draft. Join the grandmasters of the fantasy baseball industry for the XFL's 13th annual Keeper League auction. Then pull them aside over the rest of the weekend and ask them what they were thinking. Number six, insider perspectives. In addition to our roster of analysts and writers, we always look to get insights from MLB insiders. Attendee favorite Kimball Crosley, a scout for the Toronto Blue Jays, will join us again this year. Plus, we hope to have some additional surprises in the, in the works over the next few weeks. Number five, media panel. In this new feature, a panel of MLB beat writers, including Mike Berardino of the St. Paul Pioneer Press covering the Twins, and Nick Picoro of the Arizona Republic covering the Diamondbacks, will give insight into life in the locker rooms, the demands of their beats, and the challenges of baseball reporting in a 24-7 news cycle. Number four, mastering the endgame. Listen in and interact with our 2016 mock draft exercise. In this year's version, we'll give your panel an extensive list of players who could be available in 2016's endgame. Our experts will take three rounds in which they will fill out their theoretical roster, searching for the perfect endgamers with that elusive upside. Number three, facts and flukes. Our longtime favorite facts and fluke panels will be back as usual this year, seeking to validate or disprove the breakout performances of 2015. Rumor has it we might even be adding a third variant of the concept for this year's event. Stay tuned for those details. Number two, drafts. Yes, we hold drafts in November. Apply your newfound insights right away by jumping into an auction, straight draft, or score sheet league to be played out in 2016. Warning, the competition is stiff. And the number one reason to join us at First Pitch Arizona is the Fall Stars game. Our event falls on the weekend of the AFL Showcase event. No matter which games you catch on Thursday and Friday, and we'll be going to two games each day, you're guaranteed to see all of the league's top prospects together on one field on Saturday night. Still not convinced? Visit our website and take a tour of the whole program. It's still a work in progress, but there's plenty to sink your teeth into. We have November baseball, perfect Phoenix weather, and informative baseball talk all weekend long. What could possibly be better than that? Join us at First Pitch Arizona this fall. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. And I could probably think of 10 more reasons, and I'll just sum them up by saying it's a hell of a lot of fun, and I hope to see you there. Ray Murphy is BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 28th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 51 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Joe Sheehan of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated. And remember that offer. Email joe at sheehannewsletter at gmail.com. Mention the show, 
and he'll give you the rest of the season of the newsletter for just five bucks. I also want to thank our regular talk with Todd commentator Todd Zola and all our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. Our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. And our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com co-general manager Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us an email on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with our final show of the 2015 fantasy season when our guest expert will be Steve Gardner, the senior fantasy editor at USA Today and usatoday.com, along with Todd Zola and the rest of our Friday cast of analysts. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.